0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, February 20th, 843 6610937. Our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. How did your Gamecocks do this weekend in basketball, Rev?
1: <laughs> well, I'll
0: have to ask you do you mean the men's or the women's? What did I mean the men's. Come on, dude. Really? Okay. <laughs> hey, I just had to clarify. I mean, are we to the point we have to clarify whether we're talking about women's or men's? Yes. I mean, I know how the women did. Right. Right. But they as do, they do as they've do. always Day done. They won. I think they broke an all-time SEC conference game winning streak in women's basketball. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, so to answer your question, not too good. Okay, your Gamecocks lost right. this weekend at home. Yep. Uh, okay. Do um, you care to analyze league. the prospects? And Clemson lost, I think, a heartbreaker at home against NC State. So very similar weekends. Um. I think the Tigers won all of their baseball games. Over the weekend, I think South Carolina won all of their baseball games over the weekend. The both, I mean, I guess they're both bubble teams. The Gamecocks and Tigers are both bubble teams in the NCAA basketball tournament. Both had home games against, you know, pretty good opponents, but not great opponents. NC State in uh, in Clemson and uh, LSU at, um, at home in Columbia. And the Gamecocks, I didn't see the Clemson game, but it sounds to me like they kind of, they had a similar weekend to one another, had one kind of in the bag, so did not in the bag, but were well-positioned to win a home game that they desperately need to win to further qualify for the NCAA basketball tournament and let it get away from them. So here's my question, Reb. Um, The Gamecocks have three road games and two home games to finish out the season before the SEC tournament. What what does their record need to be? to go to the NCAA tournament. I mean, they're a bubble team now. Right. After getting smoked against Auburn (laughs) uh... and losing at home against LSU, they're back on the bubble. And I would imagine Clemson is back on the bubble. I'm not a Clemson fan, so I don't know the balance of their schedule. But but I got to believe they're in similar boats. But, I mean, South Carolina plays at Ole Miss Saturday. That's going to be a tough game to win. And then they play at Texas A&M the following Tuesday or Wednesday. And then they're home against Tennessee, top 25 team, and Florida, which looks like a top 25 team. And then they're on the road to end the SEC regular season against Mississippi State. Um, I mean, is two and three good enough?
1: Ugh.
0: And maybe. I mean, two and three <laughs> to, to, may to get be us,
1: good enough. To get us back to the, uh, the op- optimism we had a couple of weeks ago, they need to go about four and one. You know what I mean? They ain't doing that. I know, but a few weeks ago, we were like, oh, this is it. This yeah, may be no, the no, year. No,
0: no. Some were doing that. I've been a Gamecock too long. <laughs> <laughs> you you don't right. trick me into that any longer. Oh, no, 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 no. I knew that was not going to be as easy as prescribed. I knew that there were going to be some, um, some moments of despair to come, and one of those happened Saturday in um, Colonial Life Arena. And it sounds to me, from what I read, that Clemson lost a very similar sort of game at home that you know puts them on the uh, good, good or bad side of the bubble. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a bracketologist or one of these guys who spends enormous amounts of of time studying the net ratings and the RPI and all that. But it looks to me like they're both on the bubble. Are they on the good side of the bubble or the bad side of the bubble? That is yet to be determined. Um, I am tired of watching races that involve so much strategy and so little actual racing.
1: Until, uh, until the last couple of laps, well, I mean, Let's right? just
0: run the last couple of laps. Right. Save me four hours. I mean, let's just run the last couple of laps. Let's bump draft at a higher degree, and let's tear up half the field and hope your favorite driver gets through it. I mean, if that's what the Daytona 500 is, and that's what it is, then let's just wait. I mean, let's just not race the first uh, 190 laps. Let's say, hey, fellas, 10-lap sprint, all or nothing, uh, bump draft galore, and hope you avoid the big one. I mean, that's kind of what it is. But yesterday, Rev, they were running laps four seconds slower, saving fuel, and the manufacturers have got their teams. You know, hey, we're going to we're going to pit it about this time. I mean, I understand it's strategy, but to me, racing's about going fast. It's not about slowing down to save fuel. in um, I, in, anyway, I want to see more racing, less strategy. If the great American race is to reestablish itself, it needs to have more racing. And less strategy. But I how get would you, the how you strategy. I mean, I understand. Well, I mean, I, you, you got to just do something about this. Restrict plate racing. I mean, it's, it's not racing. I mean, it's follow the leader. And if you get in a bad place, I mean, you're stuck and you can't do anything. No matter how good a driver you are, there's a little bit. I mean, I get all that. Look of the draw. You know, um, being in the right bunch, being in the right mix, having a Toyota pushing or a Ford or whatever. But, but I, I just think there's too much strategy, not enough racing. Now, I'm not the guy in charge of making NASCAR more competitive. And it's close. I mean, it's real closely a bunched together. The cars are extremely the same. I mean, they almost go exactly the same speed, lap after lap after lap after lap after lap until the last 10 laps when they start more aggressively bump drafting. And then you know what's about to happen. I mean, you, I don't know who you pull for. Uh, you know, I pull for about six or eight different drivers to different degrees. Uh, and it basically is based on the father of that driver, the team owner of days gone by. So I'm watching, and about half my guys got through the wreck, and half didn't get through the wreck. But when they start racing, they start wrecking. I mean that when they really start aggressively racing one another, they they start wrecking. They're just too bunched together, and um, and I want to watch more racing, less strategy. That would be the bumper sticker: more racing, less strategy. Yesterday was more strategy and a little bit of racing um, until the end. At the end. Until they start aggressively bump-drafting. And I don't, care if a big, I don't care how big a NASCAR fan you are or are not. You know what's coming. I mean, it doesn't take a big-time, uh, you know, uh, 25, 30, 35, 40-year NASCAR fan to know, well, they can't keep doing that. I mean, they can't keep bumping into one another as hard as they are now to try to propel one to the front so they can find an opening after they propel him uh, out of the front. I just think, once again, more racing um, less strategy eight four three six six one oh nine
1: three seven isn't it a good feeling though? I mean, racing season is underway.
0: I, I, I love my racing. you know yeah. that, but I love my racing. you like coming out with the beach gets complicated. yeah, I like a good car race. <laughs> um, so here's my weekend. you ready? And this is further proof that I'm wrong. I'm born at the wrong time. We have these debates, Josh, we're talking to someone this morning, I think if you ran them down about college education and what society's general feelings about college education are. My son is, is considering buying a home somewhere other than here. He had a house here, got a job somewhere else. He's living uh, somewhere else, but he doesn't own a home, sold his house here. Now he's got a little money. Well, in his world, he's got a lot of money. Um, and he's thinking about, what should I do with this money? Well, I mean, naturally, you buy a home, right? Isn't that what we've been conditioned, Rev? Mm-hmm. You go to college, and then you buy a home. I mean, that's kind of checks of the box. That you've got to do to live the american dream uh, we're, we're beginning to see a resituating of that american dream i read an article um, in the atlantic magazine that's right conservatives know how to read those big words they print in the atlantic so i read an article in the atlantic magazine about the homeowner generation or really the homeowner several generations we were conditioned convinced led to believe this is the best way to the american middle class uh, you got to go out and buy you a home, it'll appreciate in value. My my dad always told me, so a home's something to live in. I mean, it's not. It is an asset, but it's not. Never believe your home is an appreciating asset. It's something to live in. And the Atlantic Magazine did as deep a dive on home ownership as I've ever read. I mean, it, it really explained the realities. You know, you're talking about well, I you know, I pay three fifty for this. Well, I mean that's a crazy number now, but it's not. I mean, I paid three hundred thousand dollars for this home, and now it's worth four hundred, so I've made a hundred. Well, I mean, how much how much have you paid off on the home in the first fifteen years? You know, you're kind of renting it for a while anyway. I mean, every dollar you spend is basically going to principal, so going to interest. Um, so when you think about the, the total amount you paid on a three hundred, anyway, they just walk through step after step after step. And I'm thinking about whether, I mean, normally, under normal circumstances, I would tell my son, of course, you take that money and buy a home. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's the smart thing to tell him because I'm reading where home ownership has gotten so expensive. Um, The Atlantic Magazine article said that they believe renting, Josh, and this will play into your world, they believe that renting will increase three times as fast as home ownership between now and 2040 because the home's got so expensive. I mean, you can't afford it. you got to make X number of dollars. That, the, what is it? The rule of thumb, the mortgage payment can't exceed 30% of the gross income of a person's wages and salaries, and it's just so out of reach. I mean, the unaffordability index of home ownership is higher than it's ever been. I mean, renting's high, but renting will probably come down because of an abundance of supply, supply and demand. The converting of office buildings into residential spaces in cities where they rent apartments. So I mean, normally, normally rent and home ownership accelerate at about the same speed. But since 2008, we've really seen just craziness. Really, since the the pandemic, we've seen just I mean astronomical increases in homes and the prices of homes. And some of this is my you know net migration driven. South Carolina being a a destination state, a place that someone... Anyway, I, I'm, I'm getting too far down the road because I want to talk about that later. We got a guest, I think, coming on talking about home ownership. But, but I, was, I was out and about Saturday, Rev, and I'm I'm thinking about... I mean, my wife and I are talking about macros and micros, and I, I bore her with these stories about things that, hey, here's what I think happened. I don't care. I, mean, I want to go shelling. Get me back so I can go shelling. <laughs> Um, you know, Hey, I'm thinking about, I just get me back. So I go to TJ Maxx. I'm tired of your world. I mean, your world's confusing. It's overbearing. It's, it's nonstop. I don't want to be around that. I don't want to hear it. I'm, I'm down here at the beach enjoying myself. I want to go shelling Go to TJ Maxx and then get something to eat. Um, so I said, well, let, let's get something to eat now. So here's the scoop. You ready? We go to a fast food joint Saturday morning and we pull up as we normally do. I mean, I won't call the name. It's one of these, you know, just fast food with a, with a drive through. And we place an order. Before we place the order, the lady behind the counter said, I can only take orders on the app. Well, can we come inside? No, I can only take orders on the app. Why is that? Nobody came to work today. I mean, there's supposed to be five of us, and there's only one. So there's supposed to be five of you, and one didn't show up. And that leaves you a bit shorthanded. I get that. But that You know, that, that happens not a lot, but at times. I, no, no, you don't understand. There were supposed to be five of us. One didn't show up, one did. Four didn't show up, and that's not real uncommon, she said. About four days a week, we say, order off the app or can't order. I can fill the order off the app, but I can't take an order and fill the order. I just, you know, I don't know what to tell you. can't come to the dining room. I got it locked because I don't have any help, and I'm like, what in the world so anyway, we go to another fast food place. Um and we order. And I said, hey, I mean, we're getting older, so we share. You know, we we share one of these. It's not a happy meal. It would be it would be in the in the poultry variety. <laughs> uh we get one of these and we, oh and I'll tell you four-piece supreme combo. <laughs> with fries and an extra drink. You ready, okay. Josh? Four piece supreme combo with didn't get it biggie. do not want all that. Just just whatever drink comes. Four piece combo with an extra drink. My wife and I are going to share a four piece combo or small order fries. We get an extra drink, $16. $16. I'm like, this can't be. I mean, there's what, no what way. What you say
1: does not surprise me one bit.
0: Are you serious? I mean, I don't go to
1: many drugs. Oh, I'm not saying it's it's not ridiculous. I'm saying it doesn't surprise me. And I think anybody who buys you know, fast food or anybody who buys groceries or anything knows exactly what you're talking
0: about. But what's happening, Rev? I mean, somebody explained that to me. I mean, I understand inflation. Unsustainable. Too. I understand quantitative. I mean, we've talked a lot about quantitative easing and macroeconomic stimulus and inflation. I get that. I mean, I understand all that. But what's, I mean, what's up with the world when you go from one fast food restaurant that can't take your order because only one of five people showed up? The other four did not. Oh, they can take your order, Josh, if you go on the app. If you go on the app, she can do that. So you get a little frustrated. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Have a good day. Sorry, anybody, yourself. Have a good day. We go a mile down the road. We get four pieces of chicken strip, which I think there's some chicken in there. I mean, I really do. I think there's some, honestly some chicken. I mean, there's a lot of food glue, but I think there's some chicken in there. Uh, you know, a bag of fries and two drinks. $16. There's got to be a mistake here. That can't be um, the case. But you're right. I mean, the sticker shock is real, and it's redundant. I mean, it's just in every facet of our lives. And we're talking about homeownership and, and college education, and are they the bedrocks of modern society and culture? Let's figure out a way to get food affordable. I was, let, let's, let's get it right. all hands on deck. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I don't know how someone, and I had someone call in the show a couple of weeks back and we text a little bit over the weekend. I don't think you and I understand rev how challenged Josh's financial life is going to be. I don't think we understand and, and we got to do a better job of this. I don't think we know what Josh needs to make or my kids need to make to live the same sort of life that you and I did. And do you know what radio ads would have to cost? I mean, in all honesty, for us to fund jobs at that degree of salary? I mean, it's not Josh's fault. In a weird way, it's a lot more our fault than it is Josh's fault for printing money we don't have year after year after year after year. But something has to be done about food. I mean, I'm not for government-controlled quotas and and, and price, you know, uh, what am I trying, price fixing? Well, that's kind of what they're doing now. I think food is controlled by, what, three or four conglomerates in the world. They're probably colluding to make sure. But, I mean, at what point does the consumer absolutely tap out? Take a break. Back in a few. 843 is our number. I kept up with some, um, a good bit of politics. Did some reading yesterday, President's Day. I mean, I read a lot about Jefferson and Washington and Lincoln and Adams and some of the others, read some things JFK had to say. There's kind of an interesting docudrama on uh, Netflix about Bobby Kennedy, what could have been, what might have been. Remember that JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, but rather what you can do for your country. And he would have been a liberal Democrat of, uh, of the time, the typical Northeast, um, you know, big government, sympathetic, liberal. Um, a little bit elite, uh, I have to say a little bit with him, a, a very elitist, but but that that, that mindset was, was an elitist um, sort of mindset. I went back, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to delve into this because I think it's important. Governor Haley um, is having, uh, I think she's making an announcement today. State there, of the race. Yeah, there's some speculation it. about whether she gets out of the race. I would be very surprised that Nikki came this far. And gets out what five days before the primary? I just can't see that happening. Um, w- what is the state of the race? I-, I would imagine it'll be a last warning shot, you know, to to the voters about the chance you're taking by making Donald Trump the nominee. Um, he motivates a lot on his side, but he motivates a lot on the on the other side. We started down this road last week, and I want to really kind of concentrate and focus. On this, and it's more, I mean, it's math. I mean, it really and truly is. And I and Robert and I talked a little bit, I texted a little bit over the weekend because I wanted to make sure I understood this with clarity because this is Nate Silver. And Nate Silver, 538, has done a lot of, um, I mean, he'd be the analytics guru. He's probably more of an analytics guru than Kahaley is, less of a pollster. I mean, Silver tries to take some of this math or some of these, some of these, uh, what, actualities and process them in a very analytical way. Although he seemed to me, if I remember right, maybe this was
1: around 2020 or 2022, seemed to be a little partisan in some of his writings. Did you
0: pick well, up I mean, on the what ABC I'm ABC News about? started paying him a lot of money. I mean, you can't work for ABC News without being a partisan. I'm convinced of that. Um, but, I mean, at least he's not CNN and the reporter who asked Biden... You know, do you feel like the Republicans have blood on their hands? Right. And it was pretty funny. Even Biden goes like, "Whoa, dude, no." I mean, I didn't say that. <laughs> I mean, but but imagine the. I mean, it, CNN must have their book of ratings, and they they didn't fare as well as MSNBC. They need something to go viral. So one of their you know entrenched reporters asked of President Biden, "Do you think the Repu- Republicans have blood on their hand that this this, this Putin, uh, this guy that opposed Putin was put in prison?" and was killed by Putin. I mean, I think we can say that and still not want to send money to Ukraine, can't we? I mean, I think Putin killed the man, but I don't want to send any more money to Ukraine. I mean, do you think sending money to Ukraine stops Putin from killing people? Really? Okay. I'm good luck with that. Um, once a dictator, always a dictator. But, but anyway, I want to go, because I've read a lot about this, That, and I would imagine, Nick, you'll say this. You know, you got to be careful with Trump because he does turn out some of these are uh, forgotten men and women, but it turns out the Democrats as well. I don't know. I think Trump may be the scapegoat. I think Trump may be the scapegoat for the RNC not being as good at voter turnout as the DNC. And we got some of these not-for-profits, some of these tax-exempt nonprofits. I went back and looked over the weekend. Best I can tell, Josh, you know how many tax-exempt nonprofits the Democrats have working on voter turnout? Tell me. In excess of 100. I mean, they've got in excess of a hundred tax-exempt nonprofits concentrating solely on voter turnout. You know how many the Republicans have? About four. About four that have been dedicated specifically to that cause. Now, that there's some out there that say, well, I mean, voter turnout is a part of what we do. No, it's not. Paying consultants is what you do. Conservative Inc. is what you're a member of. Um, but but when you look at some of these states that these tax-exempt non-for-profits have been highly effective. it's been things like automatic voter registration, um, anything that expands the use or the, yeah, the use of unsupervised mail-in ballots. I mean, that's what the Democrats have been focused on. So this is not about Trump and, and, and him being such a polarizing political figure. We know that. I mean, Trump is a very polarizing political figure. Biden is too. I mean, Biden's a polarizing political figure, but I think when you really break it down, when you dig into the minutia, and and we touched on this a little bit with Mike and Jay and Philip. I think it was off the air, because they're talking about what, what, you know, what do we think happens Saturday in the Democrat excuse me, in the South Carolina Republican uh, primary. But, but once again, the Democrats have far more tax-exempt nonprofits focused on um, voter turnout. They've gotten things done like in, in Wisconsin and in Michigan, and I'm trying to think of the other states. Might be North Carolina. They've, they've made some progress, not as extreme as some of the other places. Uh, Pennsylvania, some of the automatic voter registration. In other words, when you turn 18, you're automatically registered to vote whether you go or not. I mean, on your 18th birthday, there's some computer that says, hey, now you are a registered voter, they'll mail you a ballot. The harvesters show up. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what the Democrats have done. So everything to enhance expanded use of unsupervised mail-in ballots or mail-in voting, the issuing of ballots that, you know, and then somebody may vote on that ballot. Somebody else may vote with that ballot. But there's been 33 special elections. And the reason I'm paying Nate Silver, I'm going to give him credit. Nate Silver's the guy that did the majority of this research. Um, Haley believes this, that the, the special elections are the best predictive. I mean, if you can get people to turn out in these special elections, they'll turn out in some of the more, uh, the more promoted, the more, um, advertiser driven elections. You make people aware that Haley and Trump are running in South Carolina, but some of these special elections happen in, in a weird time of the year. Santos loses or Santos is expelled. They have a special election. Only 4% of the electorate vote. Special elections are all about turnout, all about turnout. Kahaley um, and Silver agree that special elections are the best predictive and who has the best turnout machine. So of the 33 special elections we've had since we began blaming Donald Trump for driving turnout on the other side, you've had 22 Democrat liens, they won every one. You've had 11 Republican liens, the Republicans won four. Let me say that again. In the 33 special elections, since Trump became the scapegoat, you know, he's the reason that we can't win the House. He's the reason we can't win the Senate. Well, I'm telling you guys, the reason that you didn't win the House, or excuse me, didn't win the Senate, is voter turnout. That's probably the reason he didn't win the, the presidency. But 22 of the 33 districts were Democrat lean. The Democrats won every single one. 11 Republican lean. The Republicans won four. The uh, the, the overperformance of the 33 districts, Reb, on average, it was D plus 10. I mean, that's kind of the average. Um, performance, D plus 21. So the Democrat overperformed in the aggregate by 11 percentage points. I mean, that's not about Trump. I'm sorry. I mean, I know the national media says, well, I mean, you put Trump at the top of your ticket. Yeah, you're going to drive some of the good old boys out. But you're going to drive some of the Democrats out because he's a turnout machine, both for and again, I don't buy that. I think the data clearly shows. And I want to go through some. some you, you've got a, a highly unpopular president. You've got the majority of Americans who believe we're going to the wrong track. You've got Hispanics and African American males in particular voting for the Republican or saying they're going to vote. They're answering the question to the pollster that they're not going to support the Democrat by a, a, a less number than in my lifetime. I mean, that, that's, but you still got Democrats winning elections. Why? I mean, if the Republican president was at, you know, 39%, they'd lose elections. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit, you see where I'm headed. The special elections the best predictives. The Democrats have overperformed in the special elections by 11 percentage points. A hundred percent. In 10 of the, excuse me, in 11 of the the special election Republican-leaning districts, the Democrat won seven. But that's not about Trump, guys. That's about tax-exempt nonprofits. That's about automatic voter registration. That's about expanded use of unsupervised mail-in ballots, and that's the new norm. And I don't know who the new RNC chairman needs to be or chairwoman needs to be. I've got no idea if Drew McKissick, I don't don't know his opinion on this. They've told us they're closing the gap on the Democrats in unsupervised mail-in ballot performance. They're not. I mean, They're just not. The Democrats are so much better at driving voter turnout than the Republicans, but the Republicans don't take the hit. They blame Trump. He's the scapegoat. You know how polarizing Donald Trump is. I mean, yeah, he drives turnout on our side, but good land, look what he does to the Democrats. It's not about Trump. It's about unsupervised mail-in ballots. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 937 I just believe, and I'm not talking about locally. I'm talking about nationally. Look, I believe locally the people that commit, commit. And they're not in it for the fame and fortune. They really aren't. But at the national level, I'm concerned. And Robin and I have talked a lot about this. And I've talked to Caden Dawson and Karen Floyd, who are former chairman of the, of the SCGOP. And they are, they're frustrated when the money goes to the national party. It just does not seem to me like we do as good a job of ah, putting the money on the battlefield where the, where the events are won and lost. I'm um, the playing field, the battlefield, whatever analogy you want to use. It seems to me the Democrats do a better job of taking the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and making sure that, and once again, um, automatic voter registration, expanded use of unsupervised mail-in, but that's the key. The expanded use of unsupervised mail-in ballots, the Democrats are playing chess, and I think we're playing checkers. I've got no idea what they're doing in Florence County. I've got no idea what they're doing in Darlington County. I've got no idea what they're doing in Gwinnett County, Georgia. But nationally, nationally, the Democrats are outpacing the Republicans in voter turnout in ways that concern me. I mean, I think we kicked their butt here. But here doesn't matter, guys. I mean, here matters if you're running for a local seat or a state seat. But but we've got to figure out a way to build machines in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Nevada, in, in Arizona, in Georgia, in North Carolina, in some of these states that are highly competitive. I think the Democrats have just invested in infrastructure and are just flat out better at it than we are. And the data is empirical. I mean, the data clearly shows. Let's do it again. I mean, if you believe what some of these gurus believe and special elections are the best predictive— the Democrats are overperforming in special elections by 11 percentage points. How can that not be voter turnout? Let's go to the phone. Verd
2: in Marlboro
0: County. Good morning, Verd.
2: Good morning. Uh, Ken, uh, talking about the mail in ballots, uh, I can't speak for these other states, but I can speak for South Carolina and the election integrity bill and what it did to the Democrats' mail in uh, mail-in, uh a uh, fiasco that they've been running for about 100 years. Uh, Marlborough County, uh, the Democrats, for probably 100 years, they've owned us with these Democrat ballots. Uh, in 2020, uh, I'll call it by name, District 54, uh, the Democrat candidate had 4,506 absentee ballots. In 2022, in the uh, uh, primary and then also in the general election, uh, those absentee ballots for that same candidate went down to 412. The election integrity in South Carolina has changed the whole aspect. And I think if you look at the numbers of the Democrats' absentee mail-in ballots in 2020 versus 2024, uh, they've they've cut almost completely off because of the $5,000 fine, uh, five years in jail, uh, felony charge, plus lose your right to vote. So uh, I can speak for South Carolina, and I think in 2020, I think the Republican Party nationally, I think we took over 36 state legislatures out of the 50 states in places like North Carolina, Tennessee, Florida. Every one of them have implemented a lot of the same things that Governor McMaster did in our election integrity bill, cut, cut it down from 45, 60 days of early voting down to 12, 15. I think Florida's 15 days, South Carolina's 12. But all of these things have uh, taken those uh Mail in ballots and and even the early voting away from the Democrats and and we're on the same playing ground in, in, in South Carolina. But you so would I agree, but
0: you, but Ver, you and I and I applaud you for what you've done. And I applaud Jordan and Lowe and Rickenbaugh who come on, on the show. I mean we we've we've addressed it, Georgia's addressed it. Places with Republican governors and general assemblies have addressed the issue with expanded use of unsupervised mail in ballot, but I don't think Pennsylvania has. I don't think Wisconsin has. I don't think Michigan has. I don't think Arizona has i you know i'm concerned about these swing states that will pick our next president i don't think they've done the things that need to be done to get a better handle on unsupervised mail-in ballots and that's going to be critically important in this next presidential election
2: right I, i think you're right and i think what the national republican party has done in these states that we don't have uh the control of them uh uh we're, you know, we're going to use a lot of poll watchers, and that's already part of the plan. Even in South Carolina, this coming Saturday, we're going to be using a lot of poll watchers and stuff uh, to check and see if maybe there is some crossover voting coming from the Democrats. I don't think so. I just, I don't think the Democrats' uh, 4% turnout statewide. I just don't think they're enthused about their candidate, and uh, that's the reason their turnout was so poor. And I don't think the Democrats are going to come back out this uh, Saturday to vote for Nikki Haley. I think I think President Trump's going to win 40-plus. Uh, I've been work, working for President Trump now for nine months since June, traveled all over the state, and I've only had one person in nine months, and over hundreds and hundreds of posts that I have made on Facebook for President Trump, I've only had one person tell me they were going to vote for Nikki Haley. And I think it's going to show up uh all the negative uh, personal attacks she's done over these last few weeks. Uh, she wasn't running, uh, let everybody know how good a president she would be because of the policy and stuff. She just attacked President Trump on for personal reason. Yet she said she was not going to use a personal attack and stuff, you know. But I think that she has really hurt herself, and I think it's going to show up Saturday. I think it's already showing up in in, in the early voting.
0: Thank you, Bert. Appreciate Appreciated eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Got another call. Um, yeah, it's it's um it's primary week in south carolina i don't say it snuck up on us because we've been waiting <laughs> on it and talking about it for a long time but not being on the air yesterday it's tuesday so yes i mean we're um we're getting ever closer to the saturday south carolina republican primary for president take a break back in a few eight four three six six one oh nine three seven takes tuesdays to make fridays let's go to the phone someone's there sam in cross hill good morning
3: yeah, good morning fellas uh, before we leave the uh Sports hour. Uh, you really got me thinking this morning, Ken, about the Daytona 500. Yeah, I've been a long-time NASCAR fan, and uh, and uh, that that thing, that pack racing uh, needs some improvement. But you, a light bulb went off. when, If you think about it, NASCAR was probably one of the first companies that went woke. Uh, big on DEI, and let me tell you, diversity, when they started moving away from their roots in the south and moving those tracks out, inclusion, they're... Um, inclusion programs but I want to focus on equity this is a good illustration of what equity does to uh, all of us Uh, when all these cars are pretty much standardized you put them all together on a big racetrack like Daytona that's exactly what you're going to get equity brings boring experiences I think there's no you know and you have to you, you have to survive and then strategize rather than turning these guys loose with their creativity and let them do what they, they do best. That's why racing back in the early days.
0: Yeah. And see Sam, I'm, I'm not opposed to strategy as part of the game, but I want strategy to be after racing. I want racing and then strategy, not strategy and a little bit of racing.
3: Yeah, I I agree too. And, uh, yeah, I think Atlanta's probably going to turn out about the same, uh, uh, way as this past weekend, but, uh, I still love the NASCAR, but everything's just so, you know, all the cars are basically the same. And that's what you get on a track like like Daytona. Uh, And you just try to survive, go to the back or you know, uh, try just to survive until it gets to those last, uh, laps. And I'm, I thought that a lot. I've told people a lot. What they ought to do is run the race in reverse, you know, uh, <laughs> uh run the one of the last 50 laps first, and then everybody Well, if you watch race, it as much as
0: race. you and I do, you know, us coming, I mean, you know us coming and whoever you pull for, you just hope they miss it. You hope when they close their oh, eyes, the, the C parts and they make it through it.
3: Exactly. Yeah. I have a good friend. We have a contest every season, you know, and when his drivers got wiped out, he was through, uh, it was through watching basically. And, uh, actually mine finished first and thirds for my two regular season guys that I'll have, which is quite, quite a good deal. But anyway, just, just, those are my thoughts on NASCAR. I hate to see it, uh, you know, just on the, on the, on the way it's going.
0: So, anyway. Thank you, Sam. Well, me. I mean, and they, they've tried to cut budgets, and I get that. I mean, the, from what I'm gathering, some of the television revenue is not as – I'd be interested in this, and you, you may know the answer to this. I, I don't. Um, when the race runs Sunday is scheduled, an ad's worth X. When a race runs Monday afternoon, when some are at work and most aren't paying attention to television at 4 o'clock on a Monday afternoon, what is that ad worth? Hmm. I mean, how big a ding yeah, the, I, um, I don't know the how the, NASCAR take with that.
1: Network television advertising packages work, but I've always heard that they have to reconcile with sure. the actual numbers after well, I mean, the event. There's got to be some Nielsen ratings yeah.
0: included as part of that. And I would imagine there's some insurance there. I mean, I would imagine NASCAR buys some insurance that says, hey, you know, if this thing rains out, our ad revenue goes from X to X minus 30%. We need an insurance policy to make up the 30% that we would have got. I mean, I don't know how that works. So I'd be very interested and, uh, and how that works. So let's stay in the vein of business. We've not touched on this, but I want to talk a little bit about one of the most egregious decisions that a court has made in my lifetime. And maybe the reason I find it so egregious, it's not lawfare. I understand what the judge in New York did to Donald Trump. And the most troubling comment that I've heard is the governor of New York saying, well, I mean, this is not going to be normal. This is a one-time thing. I mean, that's admitting, isn't it? Right. I mean, isn't that admitting that we're selective prosecuting mm-hmm. or selectively prosecuting one guy over all the others? But someone asked me yesterday, how does that work? I mean, what what is the central argument in the judge's decision of $354 million against Trump? It's worse than that if you read the statute in New York. Back in a few. You know, some of these shifts happen quickly. I mean, once again, I went to two fast food restaurants Saturday morning. I don't know why this matters to me, and maybe I'm trying to read something that isn't there. I go to one fast food restaurant, and the lady says, I can take an order off the app, but you can't come in, can't go to the drive through because 80% of the workforce didn't come to work today. So we drive to the next fast food just to get a little something to eat for early Saturday morning, and it's $16. And we shared, yeah. you know, kind of one of these little Chicken Supreme combos so i'm like wow when did that happen i mean i understand covid the pandemic and supply chains and inflation and macroeconomy i get all that i mean i understand all that but but some of these macros are are, are i mean they're, they're culturally shifting they're changing i grew up in an era josh and i told you this morning i'm 60 so technically i'm last year the boomer i grew up in an era that you didn't rent you bought a home i mean the, the second you had a good job and dependable income. You went and bought a home, and you better had gone to college. I mean, that was just some of that. There was a truism in our existence, and it was you. When you graduate from high school, if you got any sense at all, you go to college, you get a degree, you come home, you find a job, you progress through that job, and you buy a home. And it seems to me that some of those I don't want to call them institutions. I guess they are with higher education that we trusted in, we had so much faith in. We knew that if our kids went to college, there would be a better future, a broader future, higher income. That's not the case any longer. And the polls clearly show that, that the public are questioning whether they should purchase a home. But more than that, they're questioning whether this college for all is has paid off and a generation of people with degrees in Shakespearean theater and Greek literature or are really worth it or not. We have with us this morning an education expert, CEO of Learner Mobile, Mike Thompson. Mike, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Did I do great a decent to, uh, job of framing you. that?
4: Yeah, I think you did an awesome job of, of framing that. You're you're exactly right. It's it's interesting. It wasn't that long ago, and, and I'm I'm fifty-three, so I'm I'm right there with you. But it wasn't that long ago where The value proposition was pretty clear wasn't it you you basically there was this agreement between the higher ed institution and the student and the employer and that agreement said if if you work hard you study hard and you and you you do well at the end of it there's going to be this great job uh, waiting for you and that's just not the case anymore
0: Mike it was a reasonably priced proposition um my my father gave me a check to play (laughs) to pay my first semester's tuition and it was 375 or $80. And, and now, I mean, my my daughter's parking pass at the university of South Carolina is more expensive than that per semester. So, so, so how did we get there?
4: You know, it, it has gotten out of control. And I think, I think people are realizing that. And, and so basically what, what you said a little bit earlier makes absolute sense. It was, fed to us. My parents were guilty of this. I was guilty of this with my kids where I just basically said, and they said, you have to go to college because by going to college, you're going to get a great job. And so everybody felt like that was, that was the deal. That's just what you did. And so the, the, uh, applications went up and, and therefore the debt went up. And so now we have higher and higher costs of college. And yet the ROI just continues to dwindle.
0: So what does, I mean, I'll I'll bring the business side of this into the equation. So what happens to higher education if the public loses faith and three to five million fewer kids are attending college? I mean, how do they balance the books? How do they make that work? If we have this realization that maybe it's not the best value proposition, maybe tech, maybe the military, maybe going straight to work, maybe an apprenticeship makes more sense. How does higher education reevaluate itself? If they've if they are quit for X number of students and we see 20 25 percent less
4: yeah well I think the good news about it is that there has been more and more choices probably more choice than we've ever had uh, as far as pathways to success and you mentioned a few of them you know you had the trade schools you have the community colleges you, you, you have the higher edu- edu- education institutions and I will say this college is really really good for the right people and according to their plan but college is not for everybody it's okay not to go to college today and there's a lot of different avenues that can help us get to where we want to be uh, we we work a lot in the aviation industry and there's a pilot shortage there and so it, no colleges aren't going to fill that gap fast enough so these these airliners have had to start their own cadet academies. And what's interesting about that is that you can graduate from high school and you can enroll in one of these cadet academies and you're going to start, you're, you're going to make half a million dollars by the time you're in your early to mid-40s and you're going to retire a multimillionaire never having to go to college. And so there's just, there's lots of avenues to, to success. The healthcare industry is similar in that way, so is the tech world.
0: Weird question, but you're the guy to ask. When does a parent get comfortable? I mean, I couldn't, but I'm a boomer. When could a parent get comfortable by suggesting their kid consider something other than college? That was taboo. I mean, if, if someone yeah. demonstrated a willingness to try and learn and better themselves, you steered them directly to a four-year institution, isn't it going to take some parental leadership and, and, and a little bit of a kind of, a, I, I don't want to call it risky behavior, but I guess historically that's what it would have been to look a, a child in the eyes and, or look a kid in the eyes and say, Hey, you know, m- maybe we should think about the, the military. Maybe we should think about this apprenticeship. I mean, doesn't the family unit have to involve itself in that decision-making?
4: I think it's a really good idea. And always, I think that that something when you spend that kind of money that early, it certainly needs to be a family decision. But I think that family decision really needs to center around two things. One What kind of student you got, you know, is is that student have, have the, the, the drive, that vision, or does that student say, you know what, this is what I love over here. And and how do we make that happen? And so uh, at that point you can evaluate the ROI. So, so who's your student, who's your kid? How are you going to, how are they going to thrive? And then how are we going to determine the best ROI for the direction that we choose?
0: Very well explained, Mike. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it, my man.
4: Yeah. Thank you. Have a great one.
0: That's just kind of an interesting. Josh, I want to get your take on this because I don't want to come back and talk about the Trump case because I, I mean, that's less lawfare, more business legalities. And I want to get back to that in a second. Um, I mean, Rev and I grew up at a time where, I mean, college education and home ownership were two of the bedrocks of the American success story. I mean, if you're going to live the American dream, damn it. You can't do it if you don't go to college. You can't do it if you buy a home. What do you What do you mean? You drop it out of college and rent an apartment? And and now we're thinking about Wow, okay, dropping out of college and renting an apartment may be a more appealing and attractive proposal. But here's what happened, Josh, and here's where I'll kind of um, here's where I'll get into government and politics. I mean, the government basically became the leading in in, in uh, incentive. I mean, they, they offered more incentives than ever to go to college. And I'm not talking about scholarships. I'm talking about student loans. I mean, I understand your family doesn't have the money to go get a degree, but we've got the government here backstopping student debt. And all of a sudden, the government in Obamacare went from being the backstopper to the guaran—I mean, the issuer. I mean, they're not the guarantor anymore. I mean, they issue the debt. They, they service the debt. They keep up with who pays and who doesn't pay. They forgive some of the debt. They don't forgive it. They transfer it to other taxpayers. I mean, none of the debt just poof goes away. It all's there. It's just moved from one line item to to another, and and all of a sudden we keep interest rates at about zero percent, and we offer thirty year mortgages, and we incentivize home ownership. So, in all honesty, if it's so disproportional to income, and I'm talking about the costs of student, uh, the cost of a college education, and the cost of a home, I mean the biggest driver in the increase of the cost of an education is government. I mean, my government basically. I don't want to say mandating college for all, but strongly encouraging men and women, young men and young women to go to college who probably have no business going to college. They probably would have been better in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. They probably would have been better in some, you know, apprenticeship. They probably would have been better in some trade college, some skills program. They probably would have been better doing whatever it is they chose to do, not taking on 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 Thousand dollars in student debt. So all of a sudden, the government incentivizes people to go to college who shouldn't be going to college. They also say, hey, you know, you, you need to buy a home too. I mean, remember what George W. Bush said? Home ownership, the bedrock of the American dream. So home ownership became a priority of the federal government. We started all these programs. We, we, we made housing or try to make housing more affordable than we ever have by keeping the interest rates so low. For such a long period of time, and it goofed up both. I mean, if you really want two examples in in my adult life, rev that the government completely and totally manipulated slash distorted its higher education and home ownership. I mean, what would the cost of a college education be if government didn't incentivize? What would the cost of a two thousand square foot house in Florence, Sumter, Orangeburg be? If the government didn't intervene in the fashion it has. So when the old um, adage says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, no, you're normally from the government and you're here to make things much more expensive than they were before you showed up with that helping hand. And, but, and you add in health care. I don't get me, we, we, we railed on that last <laughs> I, week. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just think about it. it, if, it, I if, mean, if, it if you're it, feeling screwed, <laughs> if you want it, and that's what I don't understand about the mind of a liberal. I just don't. I mean, the mind of a liberal says, well, I mean, government needs to intervene. Government needs to do some of these things. Government needs to be uh, kind of a barometer and a benchmark and an equalizing force in the world of unfairness. And and government heavily involves itself in uh, in in the mortgage market with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It heavily involves itself in higher education with not just guaranteeing student debt but issuing student debt and, and, you know, basically becoming the funder of colleges all over the country and then healthcare. I mean, there's another example. The government says, Hey, you know, we, we got to figure out a way to make health care more accessible for all Americans, homeownership, more accessible for all Americans, college education, more accessible for all Americans. And what you did over the long run, you made it least accessible or less accessible because you made it so damn expensive. Let's go to the phone. Jacob in Florence. Good morning.
5: Yes, good morning. Uh, you guys remember Saturday Night Live? It used to be a funny show. You guys remember that?
0: I do. It was oh, yeah. once funny.
5: Yeah. It was once funny, and it stopped being funny when it got into politics. Especially in the in the Trump years where all their episodes were were just not funny at all, all right? Because it's it wasn't about comedy, it was about politics. Now, these past 3-4 years, we've had a president Biden, who is a gas machine, all right? It's, it's tailor-made for this type of comedy. We've had a vice president, Kamala, who loves yellow buses. I mean, Saturday Night Live cannot come up with a skit about that. What about uh, Fannie Willis? I mean, there's about a year's worth of comedy just with, with this woman. And what about that judge in New York City, all right? What's his name? Judge Ernagon er- 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 or whatever it is. He looks like Larry David. You know, the one I'm talking about. I these, do. I do. These, these Democrat leftists, I mean, they, they're just, they're, they're destroying our nation. All right. The, the, ju- the judicial system in our country is an absolute joke. And it's, uh, it's just a sign that our country's collapsing. It is. Yeah, um, and, I, and, I, and it just brings to mind that movie Titanic where the ship is sinking. You have the violinist. They're, they're just playing their music as the ship is sinking. I, that's what's happening right now in real time. Uh, I'd be laughing harder if it weren't that serious, but it's so sad to see, you know, our, our country being destroyed from within. Forget about China and Russia. They, they, they don't need to do anything. They just need to observe what we're doing. We're destroying ourselves. And who's to blame? Well, I I would say it's us. We we let this happen. We let this happen years ago. It it didn't happen last night. It didn't happen a couple of years ago. It's been happening for the last few decades, and this is what's going to happen. You know, it's
0: sad. Thank you, sir. Uh, Appreciate that. Well, I'll, I'll say, give me a trend line that you're confident in or optimistic about when it comes to our nation. Give me a trend line that you feel like, okay, we've got this heading in a positive direction um, I mean, for a long time we were told, you know, home ownership. I mean, that's a solid trend line. More Americans own a home now than ever before. Uh, they can afford it now. I mean, the, the housing and affordability, uh, the housing unaffordability, the housing affordability index has become unaffordable. Higher education. I mean, it's it, it's a bedrock of our society. There's no doubt. We need doctors and and lawyers and engineers and nurses and I mean, we need educated people in certain aspects of our economy but it's becoming unbelievably unaffordable. I mean, give me a trend line that you say, wow, I mean, that looks good and looks even better in the not-too-distant future. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, I've said this, Amelia. I'm not an economist. I'm not schooled. I'm not scholarly. I'm by no stretch of the imagination an expert in, you know, the economic indicators and what they mean looking back and forward-looking and the Fed does this and and the Fed does that, or the government do the outlays and inlays. I mean, I understand that. I mean, having been in business, I understand the bottom line, and one of my fundamentals of business, you can't have more going out than you got coming in, but for so long. Um, I, I just don't understand some of the reasoning and rationale. And I under, if you've got a special interest, if you're in housing, I get it. I mean, I understand that your livelihood is tied to not just how that business is perceived, but what the realities actually are. Sa- same thing with higher education. I mean, I don't dislike people in higher education. I don't dislike people in housing, but, but the reality is they're, they're not very affordable today. Now, I'm not blaming the home builders. I'm not blaming the real estate agents. I'm not blaming the, you know, the closing, uh, the, 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 the attorneys that concentrate and focus on closing. I'm not blaming college presidents or provosts or administrators or board of trustees. And then once again, that you can find any egghead to quote some sort of economic indicator to suggest something that you live and breathe and, and are feeling it in real. I mean, it's, you know, well, the economic indicators say such and such. Well, here's what I'll say to that economic indicator. I stopped at a fast food restaurant Saturday morning and paid $16 for one four-piece Supreme and two drinks. I mean, I, I don't know what your economic indicators suggest. I know that the the price of homes in South Carolina have gotten to a place where I don't know how young people afford that. I mean, I know what I'm paying. I'm not, I'm not speculating here. I know what it costs to get my daughter at the dollarmore school of business. I mean, I know exactly what it's costing to get her educated with a degree in finance for the dollar And I, I, mean, I think they'll pay dividends. I mean, I think that's a, a good degree. I don't have a problem, but I, it, it's unbelievably expensive. And that's where we are. The economy today is as unaffordable to the rank-and-file American worker, I think, Rev, than it's ever been. That's the reality. And it's not, he's talking bad about real estate. He's talking bad about higher education. He's talking bad about fast food. I'm not talking bad about any of that. Some of the best friends I have in this world are in those variety of businesses. But, but the, the reality, once again, is right now as we sit, the American economy is unbelievably unaffordable unless you make a buttload of money. Let's go to the five. Rick
1: and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Rick.
6: Hey, good morning. And, you know, Ken, last time we talked, you said you and I probably agree about a lot more than we disagree. This morning, you hit it on the head. I have two kids in college. My daughter's a senior at Carolina. My son's a freshman at Citadel. And I am seeing this. I got pretty good kids, but neither one of them could walk into a car dealership and finance a new car right now. They don't have the credit rating, but either one of them could walk into the finance, financial office at their college and basically sign their life away. And it's not because they're getting a better education. The colleges started with, they paid attention to the market. When I moved my daughter into a dorm over there at Carolina and saw she had a washing machine, built it in microwave, full kitchen, a golf simulator in her dorm. Um, Olympic-sized pool health club. I was just, good God, she's not going to college. She's joining a country club.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and it's unbelievably expensive, Rick.
6: And it is. And a kid can go and live pretty daggum well pursuing a doctorate in transsexual dwarf literature or something like that. <laughs> but while they're in college borrowing, living on borrowed money, they live pretty well. But eventually... You know, it comes where you got to pay. It's the same thing with people, young people who buy houses, you know, on a government program at an inflated price, but they figure out some way they can afford it. Then when this person gets transferred and maybe we decide to go back to market, you know, let market forces determine the value of a house. These guys, they get transferred in their job, they have to sell their house that they bought at an overinflated price they're in the hole in that then you know i see it as a perpetual problem that we have caused that's going to keep going through the foreseeable future
0: thank you rick appreciate that and i mean if you've got income and income gets up to here um let's say average income in america has increased three and a half percent annually the last 25 i mean i'm just making a number up but the the purchasing power is decreasing well the only way to Make up that difference, that margin is debt. I mean that that's the only way. I mean, if income is here and the the purchase price of a home or a higher education or a degree in i mean i'm I'm being kind here, degree in petroleum engineering from texas a and m. that's a good degree. I believe with all my heart that a degree in finance for the Dalmore School of business. i mean it it's a I don't want to say renowned, but it's a very respected business school i mean the international school of business is renowned i mean there's no doubt about it it's one of the top two or three international business schools in america but but the business school at south carolina is highly regarded i mean it's well respected so i believe i'm making an investment in my daughter's future but what will a home cost her in the future what will a car cost her in the future i don't think rev nor i I know I can. I can't speak for him. He is of my generation. A little bit younger, but of my generation. We grew up with Boston and the Stones and, and so so I know he's mm-hmm. of my of my generation. Yeah, darn right. But I don't think we understand what it's like when someone such as Josh walks into a car dealership and says, Hey, I want to see a mid priced SUV. I mean in my world, mid priced SUV is fifteen grand. I mean in, in Josh's world yeah. it's probably sixty grand or 65,000 how much money does a 28 year old have to make to buy a mid level suv today i mean I, I don't know i don't have a you know a, a mortgage calculator or a car payment calculator in front of me but i mean it, the, those days are done and and it's like wow really so you mean to tell me i mean I, once again i tell you my son sold his house kind of sort of looking for another but not not about to die to have another But he's looking around, and he comes to me and says, hey, look at this house. That's nice, 1,800 square feet, pretty good location, $505,000, $475,000, $429,000. Hey, Dad, you know, my 2016 pickup, I'm thinking about, what are you thinking about? Well, I was thinking about it. I'm not thinking about it anymore. Why? (laughs) Because the 2022 two-year-old model is $65,000. I've seen ads on Facebook. Of a four- or five-year-old full-size pickup, Ford or Chevrolet, $60,000, $55,000. I'm going to my. that can't be true. I mean, that's got to be some prank. I mean, that, there's no way somebody's asking fifty five or $60,000 for a two-year-old, not Lamborghini special addiction uh, pickup that they make. No, it's a Ford or Chevrolet, which is kind of the heartbeat of America literally and figuratively, so, so they say. And I'm like, wow, how do young people make it today? Well, I mean, the, the only way a young person can make that is to have enough income, parents to help them along enough, or they've they got to charge it. I mean, they've got to put it on revolving credit. I mean, I, you know, it's not that I want this big and audacious lifestyle, but, I, I you know, I want a, a dependable car. I want a house at a decent location. I just think, I think Rev and I totally underestimate what a decent car and a decent home at a decent location costs today. I mean, I think we have this 80s mindset. I don't think, I think we still got flock of seagulls bouncing around in our heads <laughs> somewhere. And we're like, what? There's no way that home's 400 some thousand dollars. There's no way that car's $55,000. What does a new one cost? And then they hit you in the head with a 90,000. What? I mean a a domestically made pickup truck, four GM Dodge, is ninety thousand. And then I'm told, well, I mean, you could get one with all the bells and whistles, and it's over a hundred thousand dollars. I remember back in the eighties, when I knew Mike Tyson had lost his mind, he ran his hundred thousand dollar Mercedes or BMW into a tree. I mean, he was under the influence of whatever Tyson was doing. I mean the guy who'd, the guy owed the man, he bought his Cheetah food $200,000 in back payment. So you know he's living large <laughs> when you owe the Cheetah food guy $200,000. But I remember thinking to myself, that's proof Mike Tyson's crazy. Not that he owes two. He, he paid $100,000 for an exotic sports car. Well, now you pay $100,000 for a Ford or Chevrolet SUV or, or four-wheel drive. And I'm like, that can't be the truth. And I, and I just don't think that my generation fully grasp what it cost that generation. And the truth is, the majority of reason it cost that generation so much to live is we have been unable to live within our means. And we put everything on the card. And I'm talking about the government. We, we've run up $34 trillion in, uh, in debt. What would? I've always asked this hypothetical, and I love to ponder on this. What would a home cost today in Main Street USA if the government balances books every year? If there weren't an extra 33 or $4 trillion floating around in the ether somewhere, if we didn't increase the M2 money supply for 15 What what would economic normalcy look like had we lived within our means since... We kind of normalized quantitative easing because it really took off like a rocket after we normalized quantitative easing. I mean, it began, inflation's always been persistent. We, we've had, you know, I mean, tomatoes are expensive when it freezes late in Florida. You know, trucks, truck strikers cause potatoes to be more expensive because they can't get them out. Idaho. We've always had these ebbs and flows regarding inflation and the, the economic cycles. But, but in 2008... We began something called quantitative easing, and it has made the economy as unaffordable as it's ever been. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number, a couple of phones callers are there. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on.
7: Hey, guys. You know, kid. I guess it doesn't matter who you blame, but, um, you know, you were talking about the voter situation, the voter harvesting of these states. You know, like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and um, but wouldn't at some point the, the people of that state have to do something? I mean, the question I have is, what do you do about things like that? It's just like in New York, you got this judge, and what he did to Trump was he, he illegal, either way you shake it. But what? What? I mean, yeah, we can talk about it, but what do you do? What do you do about it? I mean, are the people of New York gonna do anything about it? I mean, all of these things, you know, you, like here in Mount Pleasant, it takes about two hundred grand a year is what you better be able to make just to live here in Mount Pleasant, or more. If you want to live pretty good, you got to make over that. So, I mean, yeah, we can we can call all these things out, but what do we do? And, and another thing, I was talking about last week, going back to what do we do, and people just say that either they don't want to talk about.
0: Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, the, I think the plan is, and I am I'm, i mean, there's some things I know and some things that I obviously don't know. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that during my lifetime, if I live my life expectancy out, 79.6 years, whatever that number is, if I don't die the next five years, I'm going to see us deal with our debt. I mean, I'm convinced of that. i mean, the unaffordability of the house. We're talking about Josh generation. We're talking about not being able to buy a home, not being able to buy a car. I mean, I understand that higher education has these trade associations and they have these these talking points, and I understand that housing and health care and all I mean, I, I get all that. I mean, I understand all that, and, and I'm not offended by it. I mean, I understand that you, you're advocating for your business. You're advocating for your industry. You're advocating for where your grease. is. Or where your skid is greased, I get that. I mean, I would be no different. I mean, if somebody, I would defend talk radio. I would defend commercial development. I would defend uh, things that I'm heavily invested in, or 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 have a something at stake or something at risk. So so when 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 the home builders say something, or the realtors say something, or higher education says something, or healthcare says, I mean, I'm not offended by that. I'm not bothered at all by that. But but I still believe. That the macro of all macros is the affordability or not. And I think we have generated so much debt in our world that the affordability index at some point in time will, will become something we answer to. And to breeze this point about what do we do about it, I think people are already doing certain things about it. Now, when I'm talking about, you know, explosive devices over the wall, I don't I don't know anything. I mean that's CIA, FBI kind of stuff. I mean that that's military kind of stuff. I don't know what what you know what how at risk our water supply is. I don't have any idea how at risk our electrical grid is. Um, I mean I gotta believe that there are bad guys that want to do bad things. We have a hard time stopping them, bad guys from doing bad things. Um, but people are beginning to open their eyes. I've I've said ten years. That there would be a day um, that, that America kind of divides itself, and, and I think we're beginning to see that now. I talk a lot about going to the beach. Um, I'm walking down the Marsh Walk one day this weekend, three days I don't remember what day it was. Somebody with a Philadelphia Phillies hat, and we started talking about. I had my Gamecock shirt on, and he pulled. He moved down there 25 years ago, retired with the police department. He pulls with the Gamecocks now that he that he moved down there, but he had a Phillies hat on. Uh, his wife had an Eagles. Uh, t- uh, sweatshirt on so we started talking about sports and whatnot and he said you know I'm a local Yankee what do you mean local Yankee I've been here long enough to be considered if it weren't for the Yankees there wouldn't be any locals left down here I think it's what he <laughs> said Um, so I think people are already kind of voting with their feet and I think Hochul and New York is giving them all the reasons in the world to vote with with their feet we're seeing enormous Population explosions in red states. Tennessee's growing like crazy. South Carolina growing like crazy. Texas growing like crazy. Florida growing like crazy. Believe it or not, you ready? Idaho growing like crazy. What are they doing in Idaho? I don't know. But it's one of the fastest growing states per capita in America today. I think people are seeing how victimized they are by big government, by government overreach, And they're beginning to kind of move away from those sorts of places. I don't have any idea what the consequence of this judge in New York's decision is. I mean, I honestly don't. Uh, If I were a businessman or woman operating my business in New York and as part of my business portfolio was commercial property where I dealt with assessments and appraisals and, and, you know, dealing with the bank, haggling with the bank over what this value is and what that value is and how much money I can borrow on this, and what sort of interest rate I can get. Um, I mean, I would be scared to death to do another deal in New York because either it's selective prosecuting or it's not. And here's the concerning part. Hochul basically said to the business community of New York, this is just a one-time thing. I mean, we just went after this one guy. We're not going to do it to anybody else. There's no way I'd take her at her word. I'll tell you what it does do. It would strongly discourage any any business guy similar to Trump from saying anything about politics. I mean, it, it's censorship in a weird way. I mean, if you're a conservative right. business guy and and you bank and you you know you deal with uh, tax evaluations and you're dealing with accountants and you're dealing with local governments and state governments and the federal government, I mean, you don't want to get on that list. I mean, there's no way you want to get on that list that Donald Trump was on. Now, the, the decision was egregious. And in the next hour, I kind of want to walk you through how these ordeals take place, how they transpire, what the legalities are or not. But I think to this point about how at risk is our water, our, our electrical grid, I don't know the answer to that. But I do believe that people are fundamentally bailing from blue states, moving to red states, and if you look at the electoral college, that's probably the one thing that could save us when it comes to picking a president. That, I mean, if, if trends continue, who knows? But if trends continue, we could have the 2032 presidential election. A Republican can lose Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. What, what am I losing at? Either Arizona, Arizona or Nevada, one or the other. And, uh, and still win the presidency. I mean, that There may be that big a shift in electoral votes post-COVID and post-2030 census. Take a break. Back in a few. eight four three six six one zero nine three seven our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Hi, Joe. You're on.
8: Yeah, good morning, guys. Now, you were talking about what Kathy Hochul said, that, that Trump's just a one-off. Well, that and the fact that with, uh, Latisha James or whatever her name is, ran for the district attorney's job saying she was going to get Trump no matter what. She'd find something. That'll guarantee that that whole thing is thrown out by the Supreme Court. So that's why I say it's lawfare. But the worst thing that happened to this economy was when they went to zero interest. Because I remember buying my truck in 2016 they added like 2500 to $3,000 a year just for the zero interest part of it. They didn't ask me what I wanted to pay. They wanted to know what kind of payment I wanted. And I told them, I'm, I'm going to do one payment. I'm going to write you a check for the truck, how much you want for it. But as far as the uh, housing goes, Lord, we built a a gold medallion home in 1959, 60, I think we spent $16,000 and I just paid my insurance to replace it is $351,000. So the inflation is incredibly bad because of the lowering of the interest rate. Because so they just keep adding on more and more cost because they're not getting as much interest as they used to. You know, back in the 90s, the average interest rate was between 7 and 9%. And if we even go to 6% with the government, our, our debt is like $3.5 million, $2 trillion a year. I don't know if we can stand that. They have box themselves in the corner. And I don't hear any Republicans standing up and telling me what they're going to do to fix all of this. And as far as the representatives go, you're talking about we're going to gain representation. They decided a couple of years ago that it's based on population, whether illegal or legal. That's why they're flooding the country with all these illegals. You're going to New York, Illinois, and California so that they don't lose so many seats because they're counting them for the census, and you got governors and and courts now redistricting in 2024 when you're only supposed to redistrict every 10 years after a Senate. So how, how do we stop all that?
0: Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 843 is our number. takes Tuesdays to make Fridays. We'll be back. In just a few moments, Dr. Will Bolt will join us. He's rocking his Tennessee Volunteer shirt. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Tennessee Volunteer shirt today. Back in a few eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number. Ah, number, Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University is here with us. Do we have a call? Okay, let's go to the phone.
1: We have Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Williams, you're on.
9: Hey Ken, I was watching the Fox News yesterday, and they was re- since yesterday was President's Day. I want you I want the doctor to comment on this too. Sure. Thing. Okay, um yesterday they had on Fox News they were rating the presidents. Lady I mean, was number one. Trump was the last one on this list by far. I want him to comment on that. And um why has uh, doctor what has it
0: he said, something about Putin. <laughs> I, 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 he said something about Putin. Williams, I need you to help me now. We're gonna help we we're gonna answer your question, but I need you to help me. Can you? Will you? Isn't that fair? I mean you call in and want us to yeah, comment yeah, about something. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. I saw a poll this morning that showed a higher percentage of African American males voting for Trump than any other Republican president in history. Why is that? I mean, why are so many yeah. African American men supporting Donald Trump? No, you
9: you you reading your poll wrong. That's that's false. You know that's false. That's bull. And, and, and what what are you going to do about? What are you going to do about the Putin wing of the Republican Party? Have a good day. Comment hey. on that for me, Mister the Boat.
10: Well. Uh, if- a presidential ranking polls, the you, you got to take with a grain of salt. They, they evolve and change over time, and I mean certainly it's <laughs> most of these individuals are a little left of center. And there's there's there's, there's no love lost between President Trump and academia. Uh, I, I'd give it some time, right? As sort of a maybe come back another 20 years, and we'll have to see where President Trump is in those rankings if he were to win again. I mean certainly that that's going to have to bump him up a huge amount right there. But, I mean, give it some time. Again, if you kind of go back when I was a kid, uh, when Reagan retired from the presidency or was term limited, Uh, he was kind of near the bottom as well. Over time, uh, President Reagan's reputation evaluation, even among very liberal historians, uh, Reagan's reputation has gone up incredibly. Uh, And so we see this over time. Kind of Dwight Eisenhower way, way, way back wasn't thought of as a good president. And then when we're sort of removed, 15, 20 years, we realize what he did as more documents come out. So give President Trump a chance. And if, if he, even if he doesn't win, I'm sure over time, uh, he certainly doesn't deserve to be way, way down at the very, very bottom uh, with the guys like Buchanan and some of these other guys. So give but, him some time.
0: But I doubt it keeps Trump up at night. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. some of the ratings or rankings uh, of the media I, I, I think and historians. The genius
10: of, of Trump was President Clinton and President Obama would be losing sleep, going on speaking tours, writing books to try and change that. Trump is a oh, no big deal.
0: Yeah, yeah and, and I, I don't want to be a politico here, and I want to respect Williams. I mean, he didn't answer my question. Um, he said, I'm misreading the polls. Well, the polls are pretty clear. I mean, they, they're real clear now, and they're fairly consistent that a higher percentage, I didn't say a majority, a higher percentage of African-American females say they're going to vote for Donald Trump. Males, uh, m- Males, I'm sorry, males. Uh, African-American males say they're going to vote for for Donald Trump. Dr. Bolt, I've heard this. And and to begin with, it may have been anecdotal, but it's not anecdotal now because the polls confirm some of the suspicion I had. Um, I mean, I'm in the gym a lot, and I'm in the locker room a lot, and there's something called locker room talk. (laughs) And I made a point that most of those folks there don't know what I do for a living. I mean, they don't have any idea. I was in politics. They don't know. I host a radio show. Um, But there's a lot of talk amongst the African-American males in that locker room about politics and I'll let it play out. And, and sometimes I'll feed the frenzy and I'll say, well, I mean, it just seemed like to me things were going better when Trump was president. And invariably it's like, yeah, you better believe it. I had more money in my pocket. All the economy right. was okay. doing better. I felt better about where we were. Um, I mean, some insult Biden and say, how could you be for that guy? When he does not know he's in the world. But the majority of it is, man, it, this, it just seemed like the economy was doing yeah. better when Trump was the president.
10: Well, I mean, the, the economy Trump saw, it's its the old Bill Clinton line in 1992, it's the economy, stupid. And so lots of people, it's the simple question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And most people are going to say, no, Right? Am I having to pay a whole lot more for my groceries. I have to pay more in taxes, right? I don't have a more secure future. So, yes, I mean, I'm certainly going to give this guy who maybe I didn't like four years ago. I'm going to give him a second chance. But I don't think uh, they lock
0: like him any better today. I, I really no, I, don't I, think the lockability factor, it is... Here's what I believe, Dr. Bolt, and I just think there's such a misread of this. I think the majority of Americans (laughs) pursue fairness. Now, now my father famously said the fair comes in October. You know, (laughs) if you're looking for the fair, it'll be in October. The world's complicated. It's difficult. It's very often unfair. But I believe that the majority of American voters, black, white, red, green, yellow, liberal, Democrat, conservative, Republican, they have this BS meter, and they sense when things are unfair. And I think the majority of independents in America today say, um, okay, they tried to put Trump in prison, check. <laughs> they tried to get Trump off the ballot, check. Now they're trying to bankrupt Trump's businesses in New York City, check. And I think the general voter, the Seinfeld watcher <laughs> that we talk a lot about, I just think they look at that and going, wow. I mean, when you really slow down and think about it, they're, they, they're trying to put him in prison, 91 indictments that's not hearsay i mean that that's a reality of the election cycle they're trying to take him off the ballot that's not hearsay i mean the supreme court heard a case from utah about taking him yeah. off the ballot and now they're trying to bankrupt his businesses so so yeah i mean those crazy radio show guys you know how they are and they said hey they're trying to lock trump up no they're not stop with that craziness they're trying to take him off the ballot no they're not stop with that craziness they're trying to bankrupt his business no they're not stop with that craziness but, Bo, I think we're to a place now that the majority of Americans go, those guys were right. I mean, everything they said has come to fruition.
10: I think sometimes these uh, political operatives and pundits maybe not as, are not as slick and as clever uh, as they think they are. And I think we're not, we're not maybe quite as gullible as they want us to be. I mean, we can uh, we can smell, we can stop the BS when we see it. There's that old line from uh, Josie Wales when one guy says, uh, don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining. So I think we're we're a little more sharp and cynical, if you Do will. Do we
0: become somewhat insulted? I, I yeah, I think you're right. When See, you kind that's of, where I think when we you're are when you're rubbing our nose mm-hmm. in
10: it too much. It, it it sort of reaches a tipping point. I, I played the game. All right, I just kind of smiled and nodded. But enough is enough. All right, we've seen this song and dance for how long? Let, let's do something else. And so, right, I think it's it sort of reached a critical mass, a tipping point, where just enough is enough. Let's let, let, let's let it go, right? Let's move on to something else.
0: And I think Trump benefits oh, sure. from that negativity. I think the more they go after him, whoever I they are, sure. I mean, they, we know some of who they are. We don't know who some of the others of they are. Here's what I told Rev during the break. I'm reading the statute in New York, and, and I do want to walk through kind of step by step what Trump goes to the bank to try and borrow money. And the bank says, Donald, what are you going to use for collateral? Oh, and work. Donald says, I've got these other buildings, and they're worth uh, half a billion dollars. They're worth $500 million. And they said, Donald, the buildings aren't worth $500 million. Well, Donald says they're worth $500 million because he wants a, a, a lower loan to value. I mean, he won't say better. He's got—the bank has less at risk. I mean, if they're loaning Trump $100 million and he's got $500 million worth of buildings— the bank, that's collateral. The bank's not taking a big chance. Right. I mean, they, they wanted to they're come through, away. they wanted to work out, but they're not taking a big chance. So, so because they're not taking a lot of risk, they gave him a favorable rate. Well, I mean, so so Trump says they're worth you know five hundred million. The bank sends appraisers. The appraisal comes back at two hundred fifty million. Donald, they're not worth five hundred. Yes, they are. I mean, you're 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 discounting the brand more than I do. They're worth five hundred million. Donald, they're not. They're worth two hundred fifty million. Oh, there's no way. They're worth more than two hundred fifty million. I'll tell you what. Let's do. Can we say $375 million? I mean, I'll meet you in the middle. Okay, we'll do $375. they are probably worth a little more than 250 but, Donald, they're not worth 500 But there's still great loan-to-value um, equity in that deal. So they give him a favorable rate. He pays the bank back. There are no victims. The bank never loses a red cent. And the government comes in and says, Donald Trump inflated the value of his business, and in the name of inflating the value of his business, got favorable rates, The bank has shareholders, and I'm talking about Deutsche Bank and Citibank. The bank has shareholders, and they would have got a better dividend or return on that investment had they charged Donald Trump a higher interest rate. I mean, that's the case. That's what they're arguing. And I'm telling you guys, if you're running a business in New York City and you choose to give money to a Republican or you choose to join the the Republican County Convention, you're taking a chance Because they've shown loudly and clearly that they're willing to weaponize government. Now, here's the dirty part of this, Bolt, from what I've read in the statute. Hochul says, this is a one-off. I mean, this is not the way New York's going to conduct itself. Business guys, ladies, you can catch your breath. Everything's going to be fine. Well, to me, she's basically saying, of course, it was a witch hunt. I mean, of course, we're not going after anybody else. We just went after this guy. But here's the most egregious part of it all. Trump may have to liquidate. To appeal this case, he's got to pay the fine or at least demonstrate the the liquidity to pay the fine. I think he's got 30 days to pay the fine. So Trump has got to come up with $354 million in liquidity to pay the fine or he can't appeal. You want to run a business in New York City? You're from Buffalo. I mean, you're a New Yorker. (laughs) Give me a your New the Yorker's empire, take on the that. Empire
10: State. No, well, it, yes, it's, it's it's it puts them on the horns of a dilemma, and it does sort of set a a bad bad precedent. And nobody was really—I don't think the stockholders were upset that. Uh, he may have skimmed a little. Didn't get as much. Uh, that we don't, they, they were very very happy. He paid the loans on time. They everything wanted five
0: percent. He paid three and three quarter. Whatever I that mean, number was. I, right. These guys aren't going to you know be upset over just a, a couple
10: hundred thousand that the the company or the stocks lost. But there's not much of a crime. They're making a mountain out of a molehill. And all right, and it's 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 open season on the guy. But again, they're doing everything they can to get the guy. I mean, they're just throwing darts at the board, and right, it's like the old. You, you, oh, this is in Russia, but this is in they, China. But again, this is an exception, right? It's it's unique, it's it's unAmerican, it's unprecedented. But it's like the old: you, you take a rifle out to the ocean and you shoot. Eventually, you might hit a fish, right? And I said, are just any little thing that can stick? They just they're they're trying to get rid of them any which way. They're so afraid of another Donald Trump presidency. All signs indicate if he gets to the finish line in November. He's probably going to win. Uh, So they just got to knock it down any which way. If they can bankrupt the guy, if they can send him to jail. Anything is on. It's it's a weird obsession that they have. And it's just how many individuals are just kind of pulling at it from different areas, trying to get the guy. It's never been
0: anything like this in American history before. And you're a historian. Yeah. this is (laughs) unprecedented. I mean, there's never been, once again, think about this, Josh. Try to punt. The leading candidate with a republic with an R beside his name in jail. Check. They're doing that. 91 indictments. Mm-hmm. Trying to take his name off the ballot so people who want to vote for him can't. Check. They've done that. Trying to bankrupt his business. I, I, it, I mean, to me, wow. I mean, I, in the weirdest way imaginable. I mean, I, th- this is so weird for me to, to say this. I kind of understand trying to put the guy in jail if you can't beat him. I kind of understand trying to get his name off the ballot if you can't beat him. Well, but to bankrupt his business, as well. something he spent all of his life building, building? Yeah. I mean, I know he inherited, I mean, he was born on second base, fair enough. But, but I mean, he was not born, I mean, he was born with property in Queens. Trump took the Queens property, turned it into Manhattan property. Yeah. He's been a successful businessman by most accounts. Now, I know people love to talk about Trump University and Trump Stakes and, and all these Some things. Failures. You know what the majority of those people have done? They've never <laughs> gone in business in their lives. I mean, the majority of people that I read that talk about Trump U and Trump Stakes and Trump Sneakers or whatever the latest thing is, I mean, those folks have never run a business. I mean, they've never gone in business. They would starve to death if they had to run a bi- Of course he's failed in business because sure. he rolls the dice a lot. He takes big big chances. chances. He takes huge chances. Some things work. Some things don't work. But if you're okay, and I'm taking Bolt's time here, if you're okay, if you're okay living in a country that professes to be land of the, of the uh, home of the brave, land of the free, I mean, if you live in that nation and you're okay with trying to arrest and incarcerate a person who's the front runner of the Republican party, trying to take his name off the ballot, the front-runner in the Republican Party, and now trying to bankrupt his family business, then you're you're in the wrong nation. I mean, you need to be in a communist nation. Banana republic. Well, I mean, that's what we're trying to turn America into anyway, is a banana republic. Uh, Take a break. I'm sorry, Dr. Bold. I got a little bit emotional there. I mean, I just understand (laughs) that world. I understand the negotiation (laughs) between a bank and a business guy. It's not uncommon for the business guy to have an inflated value of his property. It's not uncommon for the bank to say, Donald... I'm haircutting at 50%. I mean, I can't do that. There's no way that building's worth that much. I mean, I would rather them go after the people who owe student loans who aren't paying the student debt back than somebody who borrowed money from the bank And and is paying the bank back. I mean, imagine the absurdity of that. Hey, you don't pay your student loan back. We'll get taxpayers to do it. Hey, you did pay the bank back.
10: We're going to send you to jail. Yeah,
0: no soup for you. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a few. 843-661-0937. There's nowhere on earth that you walk into a bank, attempt to borrow money, and they take your word for what you say your property's worth. I mean, maybe you borrow money from the mob. I mean, I I've never bought money, borrowed money from the mafia. Maybe that's the case. But there's nowhere on earth that a business person walks into a bank and says, I want to borrow X number of dollars and I want to use this building as collateral, and it's worth X. I mean, the business person I had a text a second ago. You normally pay the bank's appraiser for them to tell you what your property's worth, <laughs> <laughs> and then some of the uh, some and they of the tell financing is not worth what you said. based worth. on that. But but think about this, guys. We've got deadbeats, you know, just kind of um not paying back their student debt, waiting on the government to pay. Of all the student debt in America today, one point seven trillion dollars. Doctor Bolt. About 45%. It was north of 50, but it's back down to about 45%. They put some back on a repayment plan. But about 45% are in default deferment or delayed payment. So, So those folks aren't paying, and the government stamps his approval on it. Donald Trump borrows money from a bank to finance business dealings, and the government says you broke the laws. Go after the people not paying their student debt and leave the business guy who's paying the bank back in timely fashion, let him be. But Hochul says it's just a one-off. I mean, nothing to worry about here, nothing to see here. Don't worry about all these. I mean, it's got to be chilling, Dr. Bolton. If you're a business person in New York, you're from Buffalo. Yeah, well, I mean, right, there, stop I mean, the guns. i, mean, I got to believe there are a lot of blue-collar businesses in Buffalo.
10: Probably, or a little.
0: And and, and i got to believe that, ref. can you imagine that Donald Trump is the only business person in New York that inflated the value of his assets <laughs> and tried to get away with it?
1: Uh, I cannot believe that. <laughs>
0: If, if, I if think you're,
1: everybody. If does you're
0: that. not inflating your assets, you're not trying hard enough as a business person. <laughs> I mean, really, you're trying to get the most advantageous yeah, lending sure. conditions you can. Well, and the fact
10: that she, all right, she's yeah. and Governor Hochul is from Buffalo, New York. This is just a one-off. Well, then, doesn't it kind of look like selective? Sure. Cross? And that yeah. you can't, you can We're going to give everybody else a free pass. Witch hunt? We're, it we're, should be open season on everybody. It's if, yeah. if fair. Bingo. Equally, yeah. I mean,
0: hey. We're, we're, we're appointing a task force from the mm-hmm. governor's office, and we're going after people who inflated the value of their assets to get favorable lending because we we believe you shorted Wall Street. I mean, imagine imagine shorting Wall Street. <laughs> I mean, you talk about cutthroat. Wow. I mean, he, if Wall Street thought there was a dollar to squeeze out of anything, they will squeeze it out. And if Wall Street and Deutsche Bank don't have a problem with Donald Trump, how in God's name does the New York State government have a problem? It's just, it's it's odd. I mean, it's, it, it is scary. They have another motive. Well, I mean, of and course you know they do. Well, Hochul <laughs> said, you know, this is just a one-off. I mean, this is the guy running for president that may have a chance to win and change our world forever, and we got to take care of him. We've tried to put him in jail. Maybe that <laughs> succeeds, maybe not. We've tried to get him off the ballot. Probably not successful. So let's bankrupt him <laughs> well, and at least make his life miserable if he is president.
10: Listen, President Trump wakes up every morning. And I'm sure he's got a a, a social secretary, somebody who handles his schedule. And he says, "All right, what do I got today?" And the secretary, the advisor probably says, "All right, nine o'clock, you got a meeting with your lawyer." And then Trump answers, "Which lawyer regarding which case?" <laughs> I mean, it, doesn't that tell you all you need to know that they're? And they're he's leading in the
0: polls. I mean, that's the crazy part of this. He's leading in the polls. I, I think it backfires. I, it talk, I talk. I talked to someone. We got to call her, and we'll get. I talked to someone Saturday morning. In the grocery store parking lot, because I can't afford to go out and eat anymore, so I'm yeah. in the grocery store parking lot, and he calls me about a, a particular race in a particular part of the state. I'll just leave it there. He's doing some some research for a candidate who's running against another candidate, and he and I ate breakfast together a month half and ago, uh, somewhere there about, and we were talking about Trump and some of the um, some of the negative news and some of the controversy around him. and And my friend said, and I quote, he said. I don't think a damn thing hurts him. I don't. He said. He said. We polled. He said. I believe the more they come after him, yeah. the stronger he becomes. We know that's the case in a Republican primary. I don't know how it plays in independentville, but I believe that the majority of Seinfeld watchers, Doctor Bolt, are going. Nah, man. Come on. I mean, th- this is. I mean, th- those guys. I mean, they, they deal with banks. They pay the bank back. If they don't pay the bank back, they get in trouble with the bank. Yeah. The property gets repossessed or foreclosed on. Uh, I don't know. If him and the bank had a deal, that's good enough for me. And I don't know that government should be getting in those um, sorts of affairs. But, you know, good old New York continues to run people out of its state into other destinations. We just have enough here. We let Bolt in and a few others. We've got enough down here to say grace over. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence, you are on the air with Dr. Bolt. Hey,
11: guys. Good, good morning. morning. Um, Dr. Bolt, I have a question for you. I know we talk about uh, checks and balances between the branches of government. Um, I swear, it, it, this drives me crazy. I want to know, is there any historical presidents to stop Congress from spending money? I mean, they are, and I know they hold the purse strings yeah. as their purview, but this, is, this has become, this has gone beyond the pale yeah. as far as I'm
0: concerned.
10: Thank uh, you, sir. Pre-
0: historical Appreciate the call.
10: No, th- th- there have been presidents who've used the veto power. Well, Jackson closed over the bank. So, exactly. Jackson. They, and there were other guys who were just these. They would say these are petty. These are these are pet projects, local projects. It's a waste of the taxpayers' funds. Now again, the problem is a presidential veto is an absolute. And so again, what we do today now we just we just put a whole bunch of stuff together in these big huge spending bills. So if the president says no 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 I don't like this this is too much. Well, there's enough guys who are gonna have who are gonna lose that the veto is probably gonna be overridden. So I was like, well, I might as well sign the darn thing rather than look bad and then lose in the end. But no, I mean, it, it takes a president with a lot of courage and some political support behind him in Congress that's gonna sustain the veto. And again, you haven't had this in a long time. But you, know, you had had guys like Jefferson and Jackson, uh, who were saying, no, this is a you know, this is a waste of the taxpayers' money. And again, these guys were vetoing bills where they were just appropriating uh, a couple thousand dollars to stuff. And Andrew Jackson vetoed a bill because uh, they were going to build a road through his political enemies, Henry Clay's home state. And that was the only reason why uh, Jackson said, heck no, we're not going <laughs> to spend money on this. I'm not going to help out a guy who, who hates me. And so yeah, kind of a Trump-esque quality, if you will. But again, no, it's, it's been a long time, though, since we've kind of had somebody with that moral backbone. Who
0: was the first big spender? I mean, who would have been in in my, you know, the way we make determinations now, um, I mean, they're all big spenders now, Republicans and Democrats, because they do omnibus and and continuing resolutions and they fund these entitlement plans and programs. But who would have been the first big spender in the American presidency? (laughs) You
10: know, the Washington and Hamilton, they were spending a lot of money early on. Hamilton thought a, a national debt, if properly managed and funded, was in fact a good thing. You spend money, you tie the wealthy, the rich guys to the new government. So this way, they're not issuing calls to, hey, maybe we ought to get rid of this Constitution and start from scratch. Political brilliance uh, on the part of Hamilton's part, it kind of goes away after that. Uh, It wasn't until 1890 that was the first time that Congress spent a billion dollars, 1890, in an entire session. I mean, nowadays in America, we do the morning prayer, and then we spend a billion dollars every day. But we spent a
0: billion during the
10: prayer. <laughs> there you go. I mean, we do. I mean, if well, you've well seen said. the debt clock, we're spending a billion dollars while we're thanking the good Lord
0: for our breakfast.
10: You know, you're you're absolutely. But again, in eight, it was a big deal. It was a watershed moment. The, most of the people voted those guys out of office, and so you had a sort of had a uh cut cut spending after that. But again, ever since sort of like World War II, uh, we've just been off to the races. We've been priming the pump. Uh, government spending is a good
0: thing uh, in the minds of many Americans. Well said. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bold, history chair, Francis Marion University, and a native of Buffalo, New York, where they're trying to not put Trump in prison. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. They, I don't think they've tried to take him off the ballot yet, but they're trying to put him in prison and bankrupt his business. <laughs> yeah, only
1: because they ha- haven't figured out
0: a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, you know, that, give them time. Right. I mean, they, they're still, you know they're working There's still other um, levers or levers to pull. Let's go to the phone.
1: Don in Florence. Hi, Don. You are on with Dr. Bolt.
12: Hey, uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, say, uh, we not. We shouldn't be worried about uh, Trump's uh, assets. His major assets had not been stated yet, and that's information. He has information that the Russians need, so Putin should easily be able to loan him or give him a billion dollars to get him out of his hole.
0: Based on, I'm, that's an interesting storyline. Well, he, he has information, uh,
12: uh, our secrets. Uh, he knows, uh, uh, American spies in Russia. He knows, uh, Israeli spies there. So uh, Putin would like to have those names and be able to eliminate them. So they're valuable assets that Russia has.
0: So you think Trump would sell the country out to pay off the debt?
12: Well, he has teasers like giving away our secrets. Uh, so why wouldn't they believe that he has uh, something valuable to give them? But, I mean, you're Instead making of,
0: You're. – I mean, I, I'm I'm waiting on some sort of fact. I mean, give me give – me, it's a fact that he's been fined $354 million. It's a fact that the basis of that trial is the banks got paid back, but they misstated the value of his company. I mean, I can give you a lot of facts on taking him off the ballot. There are facts on 91 indictments. There are facts on, you know, a trial in New York where a judge said – he owes $345 million before he can appeal. I'm still waiting on a fact about well, his story, about, about the story you're talking about. Well, where, where are the facts in regards to that? I mean, I get the I MSNBC think, talking point. He but, might just be trying, just trying to be cute here. I'm, talk- I'm
12: talking about money. He don't have to worry about money because he's got valuable information to, for sale.
0: I'm still waiting on a fact.
12: Well, he's, he knows he's stolen our... Our top secret documents. I don't know if he's got gone through it enough yet, but he certainly knows a few tidbits. He don't have to have a, have to have the secrets about how to build a jet plane or anything. He just needs to have. But phones. I mean,
0: I, I, your, is your argument that he has the secrets? He could sell the secrets to Russia. Russia pay him enough to pay off his business debt. Is that the story? Yeah, that's what my point is. Okay, well that that's silly, but that's, I mean that's cute. Yeah, that that's, that's right. I mean that's um. <laughs> That's the MSNBC I talking, guess. the mainstream media. I, I did talking see point.
1: that uh, somebody said that. But,
0: but can, can I say this? I'm sorry. I'm interrupting. That is so typical of the never Trumper. They've got these stories, mm-hmm. but there are no facts. I mean, they, and they're cute. And, and, and they probably celebrate you at the country club. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you put your vanilla latte down, I mean, you sound a little more resounding that, than before. I get all that. I mean, I understand social status and i mean there's a there's a burden you carry in those social circles when it's known that you're for trump um but but i'm I'm still waiting on somebody to factually argue that Donald Trump is going to sell. National security secrets to the Russian government. I mean, that's that's been since 2016. It's I mean, both that's an eight-year rumor. A, a boogie, a boogeyman. Yeah, I mean, they well, want uh, us.
10: They want us to believe that it's another scare tactic.
0: And and maybe he does. I mean, that maybe possibility. Maybe yeah. Trump has at Mar-a-Lago some of the top secret information, and he knew that this trial was coming down the pike, and he knew he'd have to come up with 345 million dollars. <laughs> and now's the time to call Putin and say, "Hey, do you want these?" Do uh, you want this top-secret information or not? That may be true. but I mean, Once again, I have not seen any data or any—I've seen story after story after story. It's alleged All right. this could be, this might be. What if this were to happen? But but I can quote the facts, and the facts are that Trump—they've tried to take him off the ballot. There's 91 indictments. They're trying to charge him in Georgia, New York, and—Georgia, uh, New York, and Florida— with the obstruction of justice and mishandling classified information, and it's a fact that Letitia James ran in New York saying, if given the awesome. opportunity, I'm going after Donald Trump.
1: Well, what I was going to say is I read that if they take Truth Social public,
0: then his shares are worth about four billion. <laughs> mm, okay. Why don't they take it public? <laughs> well, they might be. Yeah. Well, me, I mean, I am a little Charleston Heston like you ready? I may pay that 345 billion. It'll be over my dead body. I mean, it would be over my dead body before I paid the New York government $345 million on some bogus lawsuit. But but it it really I mean and I mean this with all due respect. The the people that I mean, and I'm talking about the never Trumpers. I'm not talking about those who say, man, he's a little bit too different, he's a little bit too crazy, too chaotic. I respect that. I mean, I really and truly respect that. But there's that element out there that says he's got those papers in Mar-a-Lago because he wants to sell him to Putin. I mean, I, I think you can accuse Trump of a lot of things being unpatriotic. Yeah. Doesn't seem
10: to be well, uh, one of those. You know, I'm, I'm not one to kind of go down the conspiracy road, but if, if there was any possibility that I'll have to believe the guys, the men and women at Langley, Quantico, CIA, FBI, might have a thing or two to kind of say about that. There may be a way to maybe discourage him or make sure that it, I like to think the intelligence agency wouldn't like uh, somebody ratting out or exposing where our, our assets are throughout the world.
0: You have a, another call. Okay, 937 Doctor Will Bold, History Chair, Francis Marion University is with us. So, what do you think happens Saturday, Nikki Haley? Uh, it's been on Fox News all morning. Yeah. She has a major announcement ah, today yeah. at twelve about State of the State. There's no way Nikki gets out. I, can't, I mean, I just can't for the life of me imagine. Right. That would be
1: the surprise yeah. of the century.
0: But I mean, what else is the state of the? We know what the state of the race is. You know what the state of the race is? You're going to get whooped in your home state. I mean, that, that's the state of the race. You're going to get whooped in your home state by how bad. All right. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have any idea how many independents and Democrats turn I'm out. I don't yeah. think it'll be many. I really don't. And if it isn't many, if it's less than 15%, she gets beat 20 percentage points. Maybe
10: it's it's that. I, I do have to say, though, it, she is kind of carpet bombing whatever money they're, they're dumping all sorts. I'm getting texts. Every day, multiple texts, and the texts aren't even addressed to me. Uh, they're coming on my phone, addressed to my wife, my father-in-law. You know how they're somehow getting this information. we have getting mailers, robocalls. Uh, President Trump, though, has cu- has cut an ad specifically going after her. So maybe I don't know if he's worried, or maybe he just wants to deliver the knockout blow. Well, he, he doesn't need to deliver the knockout; just run up the score uh, a little bit, but. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, what's a victory if she keeps it in single digits? There's no Haley?
0: way. There's no way it's single digit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there, there is no way. I've seen too much data, too many polls. Um, i got a crazy theory, Dr. Bolt. I believe <laughs> that they've tried to decide, is this a place? you got, You got a former governor of a southern state, very Republican, very red. Can you spend enough money to dislodge Trump from his voters? Yeah. It's kind of an <laughs> academic exercise. I yeah. mean, is there any way? that we can spend enough money to just beat up on Trump. And I'm talking about Republicans beating up on Trump. Is there any way that you can go after him, 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 and dislodge some of the support he has amongst Republican primary voters? I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but but the other efforts are futile. And
10: I would say this is not the right state to conduct that experiment. This is very, very strong, the support for Trump in this state— probably compared to a lot of other states, especially in sort of in this PD region, it's, it's very, very strong, right? It's you know, maybe the upcountry they they hold their nose, but down here the, the Trump, they're gonna charge the gates of hell. I mean any attack on they we regard it as a personal attack on us. And so I'm not you know, maybe you could do this in North Carolina, maybe Georgia where the, the support isn't as tough. Temp- I just think it's the bad state to try and well, to try they, it. Imagine
0: if you've got a former governor. Yeah. running in their homestead home home ground home territory. outspending the current front runner 10 to 1 it's Hard to make it a dent and not making a dent yeah. what does that that's I mean, a lot that, that's crazy yeah i mean it, it, <laughs> it's unexplainable to me i mean I, i've been in politics and i'm going like you can't do that i mean there's no way you get outspent yeah. 10 to 1 running against somebody who was a favorite of their yeah. popular uh, at the time yeah. but, but how like, long
1: have the different groups been trying to separate trump from the voters ever since the day he came on the scene. But they're,
0: they're, the they're playing a perfect hand here. They, they've got a former governor. It would seem that way. Well, I mean, no. It would seem that way. And, I mean, this is monopoly money for a lot of those folks anyway. <laughs> I'm talking about hedge funds and Wall Streeters. I mean, what's another ten grand to a political action committee? The Koch brothers. I mean, it's a little bit like, I mean, they're playing a game, trading places. Remember the Mortimers? I mean, uh, the Duke brothers kind of played a game with Billy Ray Valentine. And um, I just think, one, I wonder sometimes if those puppet masters aren't playing a game with all of us puppets. Uh, we'll take a break. Dr. Bolt, thank you very much.
10: Good stuff, guys. Have a good week. We'll
0: take a break. Back in a few. 843 937 takes Tuesdays to make Friday back in the groove. Tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday, leading up to the Republican primary in South Carolina. I have no idea what the announcement is. I mean, I wouldn't have an idea what the announcement is. I'm not an insider with the Haley campaign. I do want to thank Nikki, and I mean this sincerely. Um, she came on Sunday, excuse me, Friday, she acquitted herself well. She answered the questions. I mean, it's not an interview as much as it is an opportunity for her. I mean, if we had Nikki for an hour on a podcast, I mean, we'd get in the minutiae, but it was about, I think we had her for about nine minutes, and it's really a campaign speech over the airwaves. Um, I'm not a hard-hitting journalist. Uh, if I were, there were several things I'd ask about, um, and I think Nikki's answered some of the questions in the last few days going after Trump. I mean, she's really strongly and aggressively gone after um, Donald Trump, I guess the question that Nikki has to ask herself is, where do I go from here? What, what, what do I do now? The, the only alternative I can see for Nikki Haley is to move and take Susan Collins's place in Maine when she's decides to retire. I mean, that may be the deal the establishment made with her. Hey, Nikki, when you go after Donald We know you'll never get elected statewide in South Carolina again. I mean, we know you probably have a propensity to politics, but we'll figure out a way. Kind of like Hillary Clinton in New York. I remember she moved to, um, was it Chappaqua, uh, New York, Mm -hmm. and ran for the Senate seat, became a senator uh, from New York, then ran for president, I think gave up the seat. Well, secretary of state to begin with, and then um, senator from New York. I don't don't know. I mean, I, I think you can go there. I mean, I think if you want to run in a Republican primary in Maine or one of the New England states that's a little bit purpley, um, I think you could probably, Nikki Haley would fit that would fit that mold. But I don't know where she goes from here in South Carolina relating to Republican politics in the future. I mean, I, I just don't, for the life of me, understand that. Um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to watch today, tomorrow, and Friday kind of play itself out. Is it a 60-40 race? Is it a 65-35 race? Um, I think that all depends on the sliding scale of the number of independents and Democrats. I mean, They've tried to mobilize a lot of independents and a lot of Democrats. I just think that's, um, I mean, that's not a strategy to win, but it may be a strategy to keep from getting embarrassed. Does it matter if she gets embarrassed? I mean, she fought the giant in her home state. You know, she did what nobody else just, uh, said she should do. Is there any street cred? you get as a result of that. The one thing, the miscalculation, and it's made by more Republicans than you can imagine, negative news hurts Donald Trump. It doesn't. I promise it doesn't. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Johnny in Hartsville. Warning, you are on.
8: Good morning,
11: guys. I was listening to your interview with uh, Nicky Friday. And I was, you know, I was kind of going on until I heard the infamous suckers and losers, and after she said that, all I heard after that was Charlie Brown's school teacher,
9: womp, 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 <laughs> So I took
11: that, ran it through an AI interpreter, and it turns out, really, it was it was Jeff and Williams you were talking to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
0: you, Johnny. You appreciate that. Um, I mean, Nikki was in a very, con- and he is, I mean, still is, today, tomorrow, Thursday and Friday. I mean, if she sees this thing through, there. Once you get it one on one, you can't kiss your opponent's butt. I mean, you got to create contrast. You got to be aggressive, especially when you're down. As far as she's down, the the career rewarding thing for Nikki to do from the outside looking in. I don't know what kind of deal Nikki has with the donor class. I mean, I, I don't have any idea. Hey, Nikki, if you'll see this thing through. You're going to lose, and you'll get beat up in your home state, but we'll make it up to you on the other side. I got no idea. I mean, I know that happens, and I know there's sacrificial lambs in American politics. The one thing that I've never understood, and I don't know that you can do this, I think there's a way to go after Trump without insulting his base. I mean, I, I really believe that. And, and I'm you know, w- what do you do in the moment? I don't know. What what subject do you take on? What issue? Do you address I don't know. But but I just gotta believe that when you go after Trump, he has this weird way of making it about them and not him. They're not coming after me. I mean that, you know, they're they're not calling me a jerk. They're calling you a jerk. Well, no, they're calling you a jerk because you kinda are a jerk. They're not calling me a narcissist and an ego maniac, they're calling you a narcissist and an ego maniac. And and maybe that's his um his mud wrestling skills (laughs) on full (laughs) On full display, his ability to turn everything into something that it's really not. But, I mean, you know, I don't have a problem with Nikki going after Trump. I mean, if you want the nomination and you're that far behind, you got to throw Hail Marys. I mean, you got to go after uh, the gusto. And and I think what she's done is probably the only strategy she had. Um, You know, do you, does Nikki, here's an interesting question. Does Nikki move to Maine in the next two years, in the next year? I mean, that, that would be interesting. And rest assured, some of those sorts of conversations have already been had. I mean, Hillary Clinton wanted to be an elected official so bad she could she could taste it. So the DNC cut her a deal. I mean, hey, we'll, we'll figure something out. You just do this. you be a loyal servant to our calls, liberal government, big government, <laughs> Probably
1: can't get you elected in Arkansas.
0: Um, I mean, we can't get you elected in Arkansas. We can't get elected or get you elected nationally. But we'll figure something out uh, in in the grand scheme. And I just think that may be what they've done w- with Nikki. And I don't know that. And, and I'll tell you, the the problem that Nikki's going to have is the, I mean, she's aligned herself asymmetrically with the voters. I mean, she is the darling of the donors. I mean, she ran as governor, what, darling of the anti-establishment. I mean, she was the, you know, knocked the fellows out of the way. Henry McMaster, Andre Bauer, Gresham Barrett. I mean, they were establishment-oriented candidates. And this would have been before this populist nationalism has become so prevalent in uh, the Republican Party. But it's just, I I don't know where you go from here if you stay in South Carolina and wish to be a part of politics. I mean, I don't think she could win could she win a congressional seat in in the Charleston area? Probably. I mean, you know, she would be a moderate Republican now, a business uh, kind of a donor oriented Republican, globalist interventionist, and and Charleston would be more acceptable to that than than anywhere else. I, I told you, I talked to someone Saturday who studies this, not Robert, but somebody else who who studies this stuff, and he and I have had a lot of debates about how much. Is enough Trump? How much is too much Trump? Where's that kind of a place of equilibrium that candidates find? I think it's a sweet spot. Um, Trump is not transferable, by and large. I'm talking about the antics, the attitude, the demeanor. I mean, is, is, is endorsements transferable? And then being against you is transferable. But the the idea that somebody's going to mimic Donald Trump, get away with it's just, I mean, you can't undo that. I mean, you're just not going to be successful. I mean, Trump says things, if you try to emulate Trump, I mean, you're going to look foolish. You just saw you're going to look like somebody with a pistol shooting a, a rattlesnake. I mean, do we remember that ad that Catherine Templeton ran? And to me, it just hurt her so bad because uh, it appeared that, okay, she wants us to believe she's kind of like Trump. She doesn't play by the rules that everybody else plays by. And I just think it was a terrible moment in in that campaign. Now, I you know, Trump doesn't play as well in Charleston and some of the low country uh, as he does in a lot of other places. But I was talking to my buddy who polls on him, and I mean, he's polling about every other day now. And he said, you know, a while back you told me that the kind of the secret potion is what's enough Trump, what's too much Trump. I said, yeah. I mean, I think we're all, Republicans are always searching for that sweet spot. He said, I don't think there's a such thing right now as too much. I mean, I don't. I, I, I you know, we, we poll, we look at the data. I don't think there's, and, but, but that really is because, and it goes back to, why would you insult the Trump voter? And, and I do believe this. I believe that when they go after Trump, in, in the weirdest way, they've insulted these voters. I mean, the, the voters aren't under 91 indictments. They didn't try to take the voters off the ballot. The voters aren't liable for $345 million in a crazy lawsuit in New York that, that I think the appellate court will eventually overturn. I mean, It's nonsense what they're doing in in New York, but it's New York. And, you know, liberal Democrats hate Donald Trump for whatever reason, and they're going after him with everything uh, in their power. I think one of the questions we must ask ourselves that nobody will, I will, I'm not afraid to do this, Alvin Bragg, Letitia James, and Fonnie Willis appear to me to be very racially motivated. I mean, they're, they're you know, three African-American law and order officials going after a white guy. I mean, if it were inverted, you could rest assured it would be all about race and racism. Um, I saw Ann Coulter on Bill Maher's show, and she was talking about the Kansas City shooter. And, and Maher kind of challenged her, so you've got these supernatural powers. And Ann and Coulter basically said, and she'll say about anything, she said, we know that the Kansas City shooter was not white because they hadn't told us. I mean, we know that. We, we know. I mean, if he'd been white, we'd have been told. Um, we had a horrific shooting here in Florence yesterday, 15 year old dead. I think they've arrested two of the three. One other is at large. Um, I mean, you know, I, I I didn't remember seeing the reporting about an African American and I'm not trying to be racist here, but I think there's a double standard. I think there's an absolute double standard. Alvin Brack is a, is a black prosecutor. Letitia James is a black prosecutor. Bonnie Willis is a black prosecutor. Donald Trump is a rich white man, a rich white Republican. I mean, to me, that's kind of, um, you can't say that. I mean, I can, but the majority of Americans are afraid or a little bit nervous to say that because, wow, I don't want to invite that conversation. Well, I mean, I think it's a conversation we must have. How much of Alvin Bragg's motivation is race? How much of Letitia James' motivation is race? How much of Fonnie Willis' motivation is race? And it has to be. I mean, I've not seen Letitia James and Alvin Bragg in action. I've seen Fonnie Willis in action, and it's easy for me to read between the lines and and you know determine that a lot of her animus about Trump is he's a rich white guy. I mean, he's done well financially. He's got these buildings and money and power and influence, and he's got this you know this this kind of a grandiose lifestyle. And she doesn't like that. And if given the opportunity, she's going to knock him down a notch or two. And I think a lot of that is based on not law and not legalities and not presidential elections, but rather, you know, I'll teach, I'll teach the man a lesson. I mean, I'm in a place now that I can teach the man a lesson and I'm going to teach the man a lesson. Be careful what you ask for Bonnie. Let's go to the phone, Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim.
13: Hey, good morning, guys. I'm glad I could get in before the Jeff and Ken hour. Um, but, but uh, um, when it comes to uh, black crime in this country, Uh, We have a serious problem. No one's talking about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, But uh, it is a huge problem, and is a huge problem here locally um, that's just never going to be dealt with. But, uh, Ken, when we look at this primary on Saturday, I mean, we keep talking about Democrats voting in a Republican primary. And then, you know, we get the phone call that says, well, that uh, we're going to have poll watchers seeing how many Democrats actually cross over. How are we? I mean, to get into the weeds, how are we supposed to measure that? Because you don't register in South Carolina. Um, I mean, technically speaking, I voted in the Democrat Presidential Preference Primary in 2020 just because there wasn't a Republican one, and I I wanted to go vote for, for Tulsi Gabbard because I kind of like her. Don't agree with much anything she says, but I do like her willingness to say it. How are we supposed to measure that? And. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have uh, registration in this state. Maybe we should. Um, but to get in the weeds, again, how are we supposed to measure that, Ken? Thank,
0: Thank you. you, Jim. See, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I'm not a technocrat. I'm not the guy that, that, you know, understands step by step how you determine, you know, if this person is a Democrat voting in a Republican primary. is this person declares themselves independent, voted in the Democrat primary last two cycles and voting uh, this time. I'll try to get you an answer, Jim. Let's do this. Let's get somebody to come on from the that that has a lot of familiarity with that. Robert would know. Uh, Josh, see if we can get Robert to come on and talk a little bit about, I mean, it's three days before the primary, but Robert has spent a great deal of his life as a Republican operative before he caught lightning in the bottle and built the best mousetrap ever, finding the Trump voter. I mean, that that was what Robert's dedication was. I mean, he's kind of one of these turnout gurus. Uh, What percentage of Democrats, what percentage of independents, what percentage of Republicans, I'm not the guy to ask that. And and I'm not capable of getting in into in weeds. I have spent a good bit of my time in the last couple of three years since COVID, since the 2020 presidential election, understanding the significance of unsupervised mail-in ballots. I mean, I, I think I've spent enough time to say, okay, I get in the weeds there. We talked a little bit this morning about these tax-exempt nonprofits and, you know, how you're registering to vote now and automatically, uh, automatic voter registration in some of these swing states. But when it comes to South Carolina and how we determine the percentage of Democrats or independents who vote in the primary, I'm not the guy. But we'll get you an answer, Jim. I'll assure you with that. And and I go back to my, I mean, I'm talking macro here for a second. I believe that the RNC understands how much of a failure they've been at voter turning, turnout at the national level. And they're blaming it on Trump, Trump's the scapegoat. I mean, Trump's driving all this turnout. No, no, Trump's driving turnout on our side and theirs. But the overperformance of the Democrats in these special elections that I think are the best predictives, that's not about Trump. I mean, I, I just don't buy that. I think that's the scapegoat. I think the the DNC and these not-for-profits, they've allowed to be kind of the face of, ah, the face of, they, they've allowed to not be the face of, you know, voter turnout. And, and some of the unsolicited mail-in ballots, the chain of custody conversations we've had over the years. I, I just believe that if you're in the RNC and you're getting, I mean, well, here's the data. 33 special elections, 22 were Democrat lean. The Democrat won every one of those. 11 were Republican lean. And the Democrat won seven of those. In the collective of the 33 races, the Democrat was plus 10. In the actual vote margin, the Democrat was plus 21. So the Democrats overperformed by 11 percentage points and were led to believe that that's Trump driving Democrat turnout. And that's just not the case. Special elections are all about turnout, targeted turnout. And these tax-exempt nonprofits that have kind of trafficked in some of these states that have allowed automatic voter registration and the expanded use of unsecured mail-in ballots, that's the ticket. And unless the Republicans decide to build a machine, in some of the places they've addressed that, Verd talked about that earlier. in some of the places they don't have the ability because they're governed, governed by Democrats. And the Democrat, the last thing the Democrat wants is to negate that advantage, to allow, you know, unsupervised mail-in ballots to be minimized or limited. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, that's, the, I mean, that, that's where we are. Now, once again, I've not paid close attention to South Carolina because I've always thought it's a given that the Republican wins here, so I spend a lot of time, energy, or effort worrying about it. I'm far more concerned about what happens in Georgia, what happens in Pennsylvania, what happens in Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, North Carolina to some degree. I mean, I'm not as concerned about North Carolina. I think they've done a decent job. The reason, well, I'll say this, and then we'll move on, Josh. The reason that I'm more optimistic about Georgia not being purple, but rather red, I mean, it's not blood red, but it's red. The reason that I'm convinced I'm right is what the Georgia General Assembly and the governor did to, I think, tamp down some of the shenanigans that went on in Gwinnett and Fulton County. Will you stop it forever? No, of course you won't. I mean, there's no way to stop it forever. But but I think the some of the felony charges, some of the fines, I think not allowing somebody to vote is so minuscule. Okay, take my, let me ask you, Rev, if you got caught, you know, operating some sort of illegal voting ring and somebody gave you an option of a $5,000 fine and five years in jail or losing your right to vote, Uh, Which which one do you take? I mean, I I love democracy, but I love freedom more than I do uh, democracy. I love to roam and inhabit the earth as I see and choose uh, rather than someone, you know, uh, taking a key, turning a key in a lock and say, we'll see you in the morning. Uh, Yeah, I don't want any part of that. And I think the threat of five years incarceration has caused some of these precinct hustlers to rethink, you know, what their career path uh, may need to be. Take a break. Back in a few. Let's go to the phone. Ron Schmelz will call in just a couple of minutes, but let's squeeze a local listener in, or a listener nonetheless. I don't know how local he is, but let's go there.
1: Neil is in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Neil.
0: Hey, good. Uh good to talk to you guys. Uh local local
14: enough, right? And only forty go. miles down the road. Hey, I went to uh am I coming through there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I uh went to Nikki's rally yesterday and I thought she rung – this was here in Sumter. They're pretty well attended, uh, probably about 300 people. And I thought she really had the right tone regarding Trump. She makes a point. Chaos follows him everywhere. And I know she's been saying that for a while. And it is kind of true. And he hasn't proven to have great coattails uh, like you guys were talking about in the last segment. That could be an element of of the RNC. uh, But he certainly hasn't proven to have, you know, great coattails like you think of Reagan, you know, bringing other candidates with him um and i don't know i was she's to me yesterday she said all the right things she talked about talked about the debt too and you know he doesn't have much ground to stand on when it comes to how he spent money um you know during the presidency and then with the covid bill and granted it was it was kind of forced on him i don't think he had a lot of wiggle room on that that covid spending uh but i thought she brought up a great point let's go after the money that hasn't been spent um out of that slush fund um so i i don't know i was i was pretty impressed i uh I don't know. I mean, I just I just don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to see Trump and Biden on the ballot when it's all said and done, or or if they are on the ballot, I'm not not a lot of confidence that those are going to be the actual candidates.
0: Uh, fair fair enough. So, a lot of people feel that way, Nick. Um, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. We're rating on Ryan Shmil's, but but I'll, I'll say this, and I'm not I'm not defending everything about Trump. I mean, I honestly am not. I you know, I, I think I understand it. I mean, I think I have an idea of the concept of where we are and how we and how we got here. But if Nikki's complaint is chaos follows Trump everywhere he goes, but she also believes that the Republican Party needs to be rebranded and reworked, how is it not going to be chaotic? I mean, if you are a part of a donor class that has run a political party for the balance of your, of your life, and along comes a guy that says, you know, out with the old, in with the new, is that going to be, I mean, how is that not chaotic? I mean, I understand yeah, chaos anything follows that's Donald Trump. Is going to be, I mean, he's a change agent. Status quo is not chaos. Well, I mean, anybody that that runs as a change agent is going to have a lot of chaos on their hands. That's just the way it is. Now, the one thing that Nick said that I totally agree to this: Trump does not have coattails. You know why Trump does not have coattails? Because Trump voters aren't Republican voters. Trump voters are Trump voters. They're there for the taking. But they're not ideological. They don't read the National Review. <laughs> they, they don't subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. They, you know, they don't know who ah, William Buckley or George Will are. They are Trump voters, but there's an ass of them, and they're <laughs> everywhere. Trust me, guys, as many as you think there are, there are more. There are more political misfits that have kind of checked out on Status quo politics, and all of a sudden, there's a message out there that resonates, or they can resonate with, and they're showing up in record numbers. So, so, so I'll accept that Trump doesn't have coattails because once again, he's a change agent, and his army is there for him, not necessarily the cause of conservative government. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. He's with us this morning. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing good, sir. How are you? I am doing well. So are we or are we not going to ever see, hear, read the transcript and recordings of the Biden interview with Robert Herr that Biden emphatically said, how dare you bring up my son and his death, when some of the other reporting says Biden was the one that brought that. How do we clear the air here, Ryan? And where are we in regards to that?
11: Well, certainly we can clear the air by seeing the transcribed interview or, or even seeing an audio recording of it. But I don't think we're getting that any time today. It might take a while based off what the DOJ has said. Uh, but I do think we will get some of the air cleared when Robert Hur testifies before Congress, uh, I believe, sometime next month. So whether or not we get it through uh, the release of these transcribed uh, interviews or we just get it from Robert Hur himself when he's questioned before Congress, uh, we'll just have to wait and see.
0: Could members of Congress leak things that are privileged to that transcribed interview if they choose to? Ryan, is that typical or not?
11: Well, I will say this. I don't know specifics on this
0: one, but I can say
11: that based off what we heard about this national security threat last week, uh, a lot of that information got out into the media relatively quick. So I wouldn't be shocked if this does get leaked, if, if, in
0: fact, they turn it in. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, have a good one. Thank you. And that last question was intentional. They're, they'll leak things that advantage the status quo, the mm-hmm. establishment. They won't leak things that don't. When you've got Ukrainian funding held up and you can't get a uh, a foreign policy bill through or a foreign funding bill through, you try to scare the bejesus out of the American people. But when Biden may have made something up out of thin air, you kind of shelter that. You shield that from the um, the consumers of political news. And it just kind of plays into the narrative, and I mean, I don't want to call it the Great Awakening because I don't know if that's fair or not. And um, but but and I, I don't I don't know this. I don't know how in tune Ryan is with the Trump voter. I mean, there's not many Trump voters in Washington proper. There's not many Trump voters in New York City. There are not many Trump voters in some of these enclaves, some of these power centers. I mean, I doubt very seriously when you walk in a boardroom with a bunch of Wall Streeters, they're excited about Donald Trump, a change agent running for president. Uh, I think you see Jamie Dimon start hedging his bets. And old Damon, Dimon is saying, look, man, Trump's policies were not that crazy. I mean, I get he may say things out of sorts and, and get people discombobulated about what's right, what's wrong, what's decent, what's in, indecent. But at the end of the day, his policies were fairly business-friendly. I mean, the economy was doing pretty good when Donald Trump was president. I mean that's Jamie Dimon doing his job as a, a CEO of one of the major American banks. I mean that's called politely hedging your bets. And I think somebody probably told Dimon, "Hey man, this cat's got a better than 50-50 chance of being president again, and we don't need to be on the bad side." I mean, we just don't. So so what's that worth? I mean, what is it worth for da- Jamie Dimon to so emphatically oppose Donald Trump? I mean, I'm sure Dimon would rather have Haley. She's more controllable. She's more predictable. She's more likely to do what they need, have done. Um, She's more likely, in other words, there's a string, and you pull that string. Some dogs kind of, you know, okay, he wants to go this way. We'll go that way. Other dogs say, I'm not going that way. I'm going to go this way. I smell something over there. You know, and that's kind of Trump. I mean, Trump's like, you're not going to jerk his chain. You're not going to pull a string. I mean, I know we had a caller a second ago talking about Vladimir Putin may have the goods on Donald Trump. I've heard that since 2016. And every time we go down that road, we find out it's less credible than even we thought it was.
1: And, All, and Putin said he prefers Biden because he's predictable.
0: Well, I mean, and, and to me, Rev, if we're going to be critical of Russian and Putin and, and dictatorships and communism and socialism, let's look in the mirror for a second. Let's look in the mirror and say, hey, in what country have we indicted the former president and current frontrunner of a major political party 91 times? And the majority of charges, some believe, I don't want to say frivolous, but they're RICO charges. I mean, I got to believe when they came up with RICO law, they didn't intend for that to be what you go after an American president with. I mean, it was really intended for the mob. I mean, we're not sure what they're doing, but we know they're doing something. So give us kind of a catch-all. And RICO became kind of that catch-all where you can go after some of these organized crime figures. But we're using that statute and that legal lawfare, that's what we're going after uh, the president with. So imagine if you lived in a communist country, and one country professed to be the freest in the world, and we have free and fair elections. And in that free and fair election, the frontrunner for one of the parties have been indicted 91 times. Mm. They try to take him off the ballot in several states. Mm. And now they're trying to bankrupt him in the state of which he conducts the majority of his business in with a ridiculous $354 million fine. I mean, what do the communists in Russia say about that? That would be interesting. I mean, what, what do, when, when four communists get together in, in the former Soviet Union and talk about Donald Trump and the American election, what is that conversation like? You know what I think it is? Now you know what we used to. Now you know what we are accustomed to. <laughs> now you know what you see what we do. Now you see how we run our elections. America running their elections uh, very much like ours. I mean if you can't beat your
1: say your best rush. Well, if, if, you, if you can't
0: if you can't beat the guy, you take him off the ballot. <laughs> if you can't beat the guy, you put him in prison. If you can't beat the guy, you bankrupt him. This is the good old US of A. I mean, this is not the former Soviet Union. We're not talking about a third world banana republic. We're talking about the greatest country man has ever known. And the current front runner, as we sit, is factually under indictment ninety one times. Factually a Supreme Court decision about whether or not you can take him off the ballot and factually is facing a $354 million fine over money he borrowed from a bank and paid every cent back. They do things like we do things. We knew eventually they would learn this is the best way to do things. Um, let's go to the uh, – anyway, that's a poor Russian. Yeah. I'd do, right. do a better Henry. funny. Right. I'd do a better Henry in James strain Carville. i will yeah. do a better Henry and James Carville. I would love to do this. You know how in the movie Barbershop, I mean, in the movie Trading Places, the barbershop scene, I think everybody was played by either Arsenio Hall or Eddie Murphy. I would like to do a routine where I am James Carville and Henry McMaster. And Carville and McMaster are talking to one another. I just think you'd have to edit it. I don't think you have to splice it. I don't think you can go from a Henry voice to a Carville voice. We'll edit that up, right? Let's Let's, let's write a script. without, Without doing permanent damage. To the old vocal cords. are about to do one one day, one the next day, and we'll put it together. The next week. Yeah. I mean, I think you need a week for your voice to recover. Yeah. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Charles in Lamar. Morning, Charles? You know, all this
11: time, Ken, I never knew you could speak Russian until this morning. <laughs>
1: that was great, wasn't
11: it? <laughs> that was wonderful. I thought that was Putin himself on there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, speaking, Thank you.
0: Thank you, Charles. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh,
11: I'm a product of the Darlington County school system, so there are some things I just never was taught. I'd like to know how many is an ass. I, I never have <laughs> figured that out before. Uh, I saw a Nikki Haley ad last night on TV, and I, and I mentioned to my wife, I said, you know, she would really be a good candidate, and she would beat the hell out of Joe Biden if Trump wasn't running. But Because Trump is running, and because we have seen what both of them have done, I think uh, most of us, except your uh, extremely high IQ caller uh, from earlier, um, most of us are going to have to support Trump because we've seen what he did. We we saw how great this country was during that three-and-a-half-year period of time until COVID hit. And we'd like to get back to that uh, again. Uh, I'd like to get back to $1.60 gas and a 2.75 uh, mortgage rate. But except for Trump, Haley would be a great candidate. And I think she has a, a future um, in, in national politics. Now, I may be wrong, but, uh, but I think she does have a future. It just ain't this time. It ain't gonna happen this time. Now, <clears throat> getting back to the uh, New York lawsuit situation, there's one set of facts that blow this whole thing out of proportion. You and I have talked about the Murdoch thing, and I said when they proved he was at the kennel when when the when they when when his wife and son were shot, I knew then he was guilty. Well, this Trump thing, this one thing tells me that this whole thing's a scam. They have valued Mar-a-Lago at $18 million. Rush Limbaugh lived in the same neighborhood, and his home would have been servants' quarters at Mar-a-Lago, and it sold last year for $155 million. If that's worth 155000000 million, Mar-a-Lago is worth $900 million to a billion. And that one thing right there proves that this entire thing was a scam, and I expect to see it uh, thrown out of court. I just think it's terrible he's got to put up all that money to file the appeal. Anyway, missed you yesterday. Y'all have a great day.
0: Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. 843 661 And I guess I'm more offended by the trial in New York, or the case—I uh, guess we call it a trial—the hearing that we had about Trump and the valuation of property and dealing with the bank and whatnot—that's. I mean, I understand that more than I do some of the legal argument. I mean, some of these things—you got a bunch of lawyers arguing with one another about interpretation of statute—and I mean, but but I've been in a lot of business deals where you haggle with the bank over what you think the value of what you're trying to do is, what you're putting up as collateral. I mean, there's, you got assessments and appraisals, you got history, you got, you know, eventual uh, development around that particular piece of property. I mean, it gets real complicated, but at the end of the day, the business makes a deal with the bank and they agree on an interest rate. They agree on terms. They agree on appraisals. They, they argue about all these things. But at the end of the day, you sign a contract and the bank says, we'll loan you this money and the borrower says, and I'll pay you back. And that happened every single time with Trump. Now, now, once again, I've seen the Twitter stories, and I've seen some of the other stories, another business failure. It's hard to believe that Trump's been a business failure if he flies around in his own jet airplane. I mean, that's just pretty hard for me to understand What he's used some of the bankruptcy laws, okay? He has. I mean, the bankruptcy laws are there for a reason. Well, he failed in Atlantic City with a casino, okay? He failed in Atlantic City with a casino, Fair enough. Uh, He's failed other places. Trump stakes, Trump you. He's a go-for-broke kind of guy. I mean, he rolls the dice. And when you roll the dice, you fail at times. You succeed at times. You fail at other times. But it's so interesting to me, the majority of people who are critical of Trump's business acumen, success slash failure, have never tried business themselves. It's a little bit like, I mean, I've always believed that doers do and talkers talk. And talkers normally talk about what doers do or don't do, and they'll highlight a failure, two or three, and they fail to— I mean, how do you argue that if Trump's got a good enough business name to fill his jet up with fuel somewhere today, he can't be a failure. I mean, you can't fail. You can't be the monumental failure that a lot of Americans are trying to tell you he is if you can go fill a jet airplane up, have your own pilot, and fly wherever you choose today. Failures don't do that. You can be a mixed bag. You can have some failures in your history. And I'm not saying he never stiffed a contractor. I'm not saying that that he's never done. I'm not saying everything Trump has done in business is impeccable. I mean, he's been in that rough and tumble kind of business world. Um, You win some, you lose some. None get rained out. But in this particular case, what the New York government is accusing him of should send chills down any business owner in New York City today, because I'll assure you that 99% of all developers have argued what their property's worth. They've argued over assessed value, appraised value, undervalue, overvalue, interest rates, credit terms. I mean, that's very common in that sort of world. So we live in a nation today where the government decides if you can't pay your student debt back, then it will defer default or put it on some sort of delayed payment. But if you borrow a bank you borrow money from the bank as a business guy and you pay every red cent back and the, the bank will loan you money again. I mean, that's not good enough for the New York state government. They said, you'll borrow money, you'll pay it back, but you'll do it the way we say do it, not the way. I mean, imagine the arrogance there, guys. I mean, the business owner and the bank made a deal. Everybody was made whole. Everything went as planned. Trump borrows money. Trump pays money back. They negotiate some of the interest rate. They negotiate Some of the appraisals, they negotiate some of the collateral. They negotiate a lot of these things. And I got to believe that it wasn't just a banker. Donald Trump closed the door trying to buy a car. Now, but this would have been complicated. Trump probably has a team. The bank probably has a team. When you're buying a couple of hundred million dollars, I would imagine that's the way it goes. I've never bought a couple of hundred million dollars. I'm speculating that that's probably the way it goes. So the bank's team of experts, Trump's teams of experts make a deal. The deal goes through. The bank is paid back. The New York state government says, but you didn't do it the way we say things should be done. You didn't do it the way a bunch of politicians in Albany said we do things. And how does that not chill the business community in New York? What's the guy on Shark Tank? Kevin O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary. I don't know if you saw what he said yesterday, but he said, man, there's no way. That a smart business made would make an investment in New York City or the state of New York ever again, because on a whim the government can say, "Hey, you know that money you borrowed and that collateral you used, we think you overestimated the value of that collateral." Yeah, but I mean, the bank gave me the money, gave me the interest rate, I paid the bank. We don't care. I mean, we're the gatekeepers of business in in New York. We're we're the government. I mean, we're the ones that decide what goes, what flies, what doesn't fly, what shakes out, what doesn't shake out. I mean, if if businesses are willing to put their financial future in the hands of bureaucrats who, by and large, have never been in business, you'll get exactly what you deserve. Let's go to the phone. We got thirty seconds or so.
1: Ray in Darlington. Hi, Ray. You're on.
0: Hi. Good morning, Ken.
3: Good morning. Can you? Hear? Yes, sir. Hi. Well, I just wanted uh, I just wanted to share a thought with you because I don't hear this discussed a lot. Um... I'll just come right out and tell you that uh, I voted for Trump, but I'll tell you why I voted for him. I think the biggest problem that we have with government right now is the entrenched bureaucracy. Now, some people like to call that a deep state. I don't really care for that term, but there is an entrenched bureaucracy. There are people that have been working in the federal government for a lot of years, and their opinion is that they are the ones that should be running the government, and they're annoyed by these uh, elected officials that come along once in a while and try to control things. And I believe that our only chance of dealing with that entrenched bureaucracy is with Donald Trump, because I don't think there's any other way to deal with that uh, entrenched bureaucracy other than firing.
0: Ray, I gave you all the time I could. End of show. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.